0: Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT A20. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath.
1: Hello, everybody. Happy Saturday to you. It's um, another beautiful, slightly chilly day here in Chicago. and I hope you're doing well. I think I'm going to start off with a dangerous game. You know, it, it's impossible, really, in any era to identify exactly the events around you that changed the world. In 1914, no one in Europe fought the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand and Sophie by that Serbian student, um, what was his name, Gavrilo Princip. Nobody thought that would destroy 19th century European culture and catapult human history into its bloodiest epoch. In my lifetime, in 1972, no one in America thought a third-rate burglary in the Watergate building would destroy a presidency and usher in a new era of highly critical journalism. There are countless examples like this that make it truly uh, foolish to predict the future. So here I go, right? Because anticipating what is to come is, you know, what people do. So before we get into it today with some really wonderful guests and with full expectation that history will make a fool of me, here we go. First, uh, in our nation's capital, the new Committee on the Weaponization of Government will succeed only in hardening a shrinking GOP base and expanding Democratic majorities around the country. Look, the much-ballyhooed launch of that committee this week was a thing to behold. Instead of focusing on areas where the government truly has crossed the line, for example, when it bans books or forces young girls to disclose their menstrual histories, the, the topics of outrage were not those. Instead, they were Hunter Biden's laptop and Hillary's emails and Hunter Biden's laptop and the supposed line of the fbi and maybe hunter biden's laptop really i mean among the things that we learned were that the committee has no actual evidence and that their standards are so low that one of their witnesses uh, you'll love this if you didn't watch it was none other than wisconsin's senator ron johnson who is as every listener to this show knows and i'm being charitable here not known for fealty to the truth right now look you can't blame the committee's bulldog chairman jim jordan for having high hopes i mean the the last time he took the gavel to uh you know manage and broadcast scandalous lies he succeeded in damaging hillary clinton's reputation just enough to keep her out of the white house but this time Democrats seem better prepared to respond. More more importantly, though, Americans now have a model of what an effective Congress is. The 117th Congress, as we've talked about, actually delivered the goods for the American people. We can now expect Congress to do real work. Consequently, fewer and fewer Americans are going down the rabbit hole. Um, And, you know, the ones that do will get stuck down there. But the rest of us will see it for what it is. That's prediction one. Prediction two, Donald Trump will not be the GOP candidate for president. And to be clear, I do think the GOP base this is as loyal to him as ever. I do think they would nominate him. I don't think he's going to be standing. And here's why. You know, I mean, after all, that base, that, those are the ones in the rabbit hole I just talked about. But this week, uh, the special counsel subpoenaed Mike Pence. And that looks, as Winston Churchill once said, like the end of the beginning. I expect Mr. Trump will be indicted on a range of federal charges before the first primary. His numbers will tank and he will drop out. The remaining GOP nominees will breathe a secret sigh of relief, then claim the prosecution is politically motivated, despite the evidence, further undermining our democratic norms. That's prediction two. Prediction three is maybe the most out there of my predictions, but here it goes. When they write about the Biden presidency in a generation, the focus will not be on the stunning accomplishments of 117th Congress, or even about the way he rallied the world to fight Russian aggression. I don't even think it will be about the political battle for our democracy. I predict the biggest impact of his presidency and the most lasting impact will, um, the, and, and one that will really change America um, more than all the rest, is his renewed interest in in what I guess we should call democratic economics, and that's small D democratic, or popular economics. I'm not sure what the right term is, but look for most of my adult life, economics has been about you know efficiency and corporate freedom and. Um, you know, tuning the dials to keep employment at a certain level. These are powerful ideas that have have led to the largest growth in corporate power in human history. I mean, companies like Amazon and Facebook and Google, but also companies like, let's face it, Exxon and Pfizer and Federal Express, you name it. These are some of the most amazing organizations ever created by any standard. Their ability to not just to create profits, but to meet consumer demand and to be creative. It has no peer in history, but unchecked, there's a downside and it echoes an older era, the age of monopolies and the so-called Lochner era of unregulated corporate power. Now, um, Robert Reich, the former labor secretary, he's written about this. and He says that Keynesian economics, you know, that's the idea that government can and should boost consumer buying power when there's a downturn, when the consumers themselves don't have enough money, um, by the issuance of debt. And that keeps the economy moving so that we don't get into a spiral that goes down like the Great Depression. But he says that has been pushed to its limits, and he shows how consolidated corporate power and the Commensurate consolidation of wealth into the hands of fewer and fewer people means the size of the debt required to boost consumer spending gets bigger and bigger, right? Because people have less and less funds themselves than most people, um, and it gets so big there's no room for anything else, just debt. This seems to be something that President Biden understands to his core, and on his watch, for the first time in decades, the government is taking antitrust issues seriously he issued an executive order way back in July of 2021 that took aim at monopolistic corporate behaviors. His administration has put the consumer back into M&A analysis. And this week during the state of the union, he called on Congress to strengthen antitrust laws. If he succeeds, the gap between the very very rich and the rest of us will stop growing. The now, let's be clear, the very rich will still be wealthier than the rest of us, so they don't need to worry, right? And companies will still be profitable, so they don't need to worry. But hardworking Americans will once again share in the value we create through our labor and through the civil society we build together, which after all supports both the companies and the consumer spending that keeps them going. If he succeeds, Americans everywhere will not only be better off, they will feel like the system works again. And that's what draining the swamp really means. And look, if he succeeds, it will calm the desperate search for someone to blame, right, the blind, the senseless fury turned on immigrants and young black men and Jews and trans teens and everybody else. So most of us are focused on the important battles over voting rights, reproductive rights, the freedom to read books in Florida, but I predict that it will be the change in economic seasons that makes the difference going forward. There you are, three predictions. But as I said at the top, who knows what the future will bring? I just know it's fun to think about it every once in a while. Now, um, changing subjects a little bit, I do have one prediction that I am certain is going to come true. And that's that um, we're now joined by David Pepper. David's back. Um, He has worked harder than anyone in the country, to explain to the rest of us the problem of radical gerrymandering. He's the author of A Thriller, A Simple Choice, and his nonfiction book, Laboratories of Autocracy, is a must-read for everyone. He's also working on a new book, I think tentatively titled, Saving Democracy, that gives us all a roadmap for participation. David, welcome back.
2: Thank you. Great to be with you again.
1: So um, I don't think you and I have actually... Spoken like this since the midterm election. And, and I think I, I should just say this out loud. Um, a lot of us are grateful to you for your tireless effort that you gave that, you know, helped make this such a spectacular performance by Democrats. And at the same time, though, I know you're not happy with the results in your own state of Ohio.
2: Yeah, no, I ob- Obviously there were some uh, crises averted, but, um, even beyond Ohio, you know, we we better not get self-satisfied. Every time, we ha- every time we've had some good news the last couple of years, because we don't see what they're doing, we over-celebrate, you know, 2020, 2008. And they just keep marching along, you know, controlling state houses, doing what they're down doing on censorship. And we just have to have a bigger picture vision of what's happening, which means uh, learn the lessons of where we did well and where we did not so well and just keep going. Um, And that's sort of my attitude about 22. I I love that we won the Secretary of State races in places that we did. Mm -hmm. We picked up state houses in places like Michigan and Pennsylvania, huge wins. But um, there are also, you know, we have the guy who's running the Judiciary Committee, who's Jim Jordan. uh, And that's a reflection of losing in places like New York, California, and a whole lot of gerrymandering. Things that in some places we might have stopped if we really had a bigger picture vision. So there's good and bad with 22. It certainly, though, we avoided the worst case scenario, which was having a bunch of election deniers running elections all over the country.
1: Yeah, I I want to get to the bigger picture in a sec, but I want to stay small just at the start a little bit longer. Um, uh, Because I think it's really important for you to walk us through the way the GOP, having already corrupted the legislature in Ohio, has now captured the state Supreme Court. Because I think there's a right. national lesson in that local tragedy.
2: Yeah. So they. So when I was chair, I was very proud, that despite a gerrymandered legislature, in a kind of a red era, partly because Ohioans really fell for Trump. We were still able to gain three Supreme Court seats, get ourselves sort of an independent majority, and this is a real lesson around the country. That majority was such a threat to this gerrymandered legislature. You know, it, that majority had struck down gerrymandered maps. That majority would likely have struck down, you know, abortion bans. But, but the legislature literally changed the rules about how we select courts. They, they added party ID to the ballot for judicial races. They moved the races up on the ballot to be right behind the other partisan races. They ignored that court's orders for an entire year that had held their work to be unconstitutional. And and this also, by the way, happened in North Carolina. They made some of the same changes because that court was standing up to the legislature. And sadly, in both North Carolina and Ohio, these changes succeeded. They literally managed to defy court orders for a year while they changed the rules of how you select those courts. And in the hope that they would get a favorable court to undo the rulings that they don't like. And in both North Carolina and Ohio, those tactics look like they have succeeded. So it's a very, you know, if you think about that as a big picture check and balance in governance that we would expect in any reasonable democracy. I mean, it's a it's a five-alarm fire about what they're doing to the rule of law and having a court have a say over the work of the legislature. So they, they saw it as a threat. They they declared war on that court. They threatened to impeach the chief justice when she ruled against them. She actually is a Republican, believe it or not. Uh, they still want to impeach her. Some of them, and, and, and it did succeed. And I think it really and, and the whole this whole court case, some of your listeners will have heard about, called the Independent State Legislative Doctrine,
1: which Moore versus legisl- yep. Yeah,
2: they, they basically say that legislatures do whatever they want, and state courts don't matter. That is the legal theory that is very similar to what actually happened on the ground in Ohio and in some in North Carolina. So it, it's a real, it, but it just shows you these these gerrymandered legislatures are drunk with power and they don't want anyone standing in their way, be it a secretary of state, be it a governor. And in this case, even a court, uh, they will do what they can to, to really, um, you know, strip that court of, of power. And in, in this case, just ignore rulings. you, know, you and I, and, and any of your listeners could never get away with just ignoring court rulings. They got away with it. And, and sadly, despite me making as much noise as you see me make about it, it
1: ultimately did work. Yeah, and and, and it's just you've also pointed out what they're doing terrifying. But you pointed out also that there are real consequences in terms of worse government because of these things. And just this week, I mean, I, I you know, your governor, Governor Dewine, you know, pretends to the middle. He acts like a calm guy, not like a crazy guy. But this week, he had a he had a journalist jailed for doing a live shot. Outside one of his press conferences, I mean, this—it's—it's this, it, it's hard, it's hard to think about that.
2: I mean, we also are, are state that last a week or two ago. These headlines may have may have kind of gotten through to your listeners. There was a uh, there was a homeschool um, network that was discovered that was sharing Nazi lessons. No joke, based in Upper Sandusky, Ohio. It's oh. a nice small town not far from Lake Erie where a couple was, had started a homeschool, again, sharing literally Nazi propaganda with thousands of parents to their kids. And this week, the Ohio Department of Education said there was nothing about that that violated Ohio law. I mean, so what, what we're seeing, and it starts with state houses, but it includes other officials. I mean, we see it with DeSantis in Florida. Once you start to lack any accountability in your political systems because of gerrymandering and courts that are basically – you know, the rules are written so courts don't stand in the way of that legislature, the wheels come off. I mean that, you know, that's what happens in other countries. If there's no accountability to the people, all the incentives go towards extremism and greed, and, and what we're seeing and, – and that's why – Bizarre things start to happen. You know, Brett Favre taking money meant for poor families and using it to pay for volleyball stadiums. You know, like you said, reporters being arrested for doing their jobs. I mean, very bizarre things happen once you have people who are in power with zero sense of accountability. And the arrogance just builds more and more. So, yeah, we're seeing that in Ohio. And sadly, we're seeing it in a lot of other places, too.
1: It should, it should hopefully wake people up while they still have a chance to wake up because this is a, I mean, history shows us this is a, this is a accelerating path down, right? And we're already seeing things happen faster and faster in this direction. Um, So we have to, we have to use these examples and make sure everybody knows them that, that, yeah, as you say, the wheels really can come off and you can be living in a state where it doesn't matter what you think.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, two things, a couple of things happened. One, once the incentives are upside down, you know, all of a sudden in a state, you know, if you never have to worry about getting reelected again because you're in districts that either so gerrymandered you're going to win or even worse, in many of these states, no one even runs anymore. You know, when I was when I was an official, I knew that getting reelected was was I I needed to show my citizens that I had done something good for the public. Once you know that you're guaranteed to get reelected, delivering good public outcomes actually no longer matters to your fate as a politician. That's a very dangerous disconnect. All of a sudden, you can get reelected if the roads are terrible and the, and the schools are falling apart. Well, and, and in this case, in these places, yes, you can. You don't even think twice about it. That all, and the other incentive, so you no longer have an incentive to do public service. You do service, but it's not for the public. Then you, all are already, then you have a different incentive. Well, the people who can control how well you do are actually the private players that are in that state capital watching what you're doing, and they can decide if you have a primary opponent or not. So all of a sudden you have an incentive to help that private for-profit school take money from the public school because you gain by helping that private player, and it doesn't matter if your public school collapses. So one reason it's accelerating is once the incentives are upside down, it gets, you know, the only way you get ahead in this crazy political world they're creating is to do all the wrong things. And the other reason it's accelerating is it's getting normalized. We, we are seeing things now that even the State of the Union the other day, people yelling out liar. Now, Biden handled it incredibly. But that was, for you know, anyone who's watched politics for years, that was truly bizarre that you had, you know, when one person yelled out liar 10 years ago to Barack Obama, it was a shocking thing. Remember that? Now, they're all yelling it, and Joe Biden knew it was coming, so he handled it great, but it, it, we're normalizing attacks on the rule of law, political violence, uh, dismissing of political violence like with the Paul Pelosi case, and so it's accelerating, too, because every boundary that's broken, we, we continue to have it become more normalized. So, yeah, there really is
1: a dangerous, you know, buildup. Sorry about that. Well, so no, that's OK. So I want to now talk to you sort of turn towards um, this fight that we're having. These are the consequences. But the fight is asymmetric, right? Because one side is uh, playing by the rules and the other side is rewriting the rules. One side is interested in a handful of things that we normally think of as political issues. The other side is not interested in any political issues, but but the nature of politics itself, which if they can change that, then then they get all their issues. So it's a very asymmetric fight we're in. Um,
2: It really is.
1: And, and we should talk a little bit about what that's like, because it's not liberal conservative, right? It's not like there are. Yeah. I mean, there's still conservative and progressive ideas, but that's not the battleground.
2: No, I mean, there, there are different ways to think about it. But I would say one way was just watching the two speeches the other night between Biden and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I mean, okay. Biden is talking about issues. He's trying to appeal to the broader electorate, including some who. Aren't sold on him, maybe independents, maybe moderate Republicans. Sarah Huckabee Sanders was literally only talking to the very far MAGA base because, in their world, they basically know they're in the minority on their viewpoints. You know, th- th- that speech was not someone trying to persuade people in the middle by going on about, you know, um, uh, I can't remember, uh, woke this and all that stuff. I mean, th- their goal is they know they're in the deep minority. Uh, Mitch McConnell knows that. He tells Lindsey Graham, don't talk about abortion. Don't talk about Social Security because they know their views are in the deep minority. So their entire – they're not trying to do what what Joe Biden or most mainstream Americans think talking to about. They're not trying to win people over. They want to get their base so engaged and enraged, like Sarah Huckabee Sanders the other day, that they just show up angry and vote. And then they want to use tools like gerrymandering and voter suppression and courts – to make it so when they show up, they've made it harder for the other side to win, so they win even when they do have the minority of the state, country, and not the majority. So there, once you realize that that's their their game, and again, Chair Huguely Sanders, that speech other day shows you that that's what it is. Um, it re- I hope what it does, and this is why I wrote this book. I wrote, I hope what it does is is make people see that. To to defeat that game, you've got to be a lot smarter than just doing what we've been doing, which is running around talking about issues we care about. You've got to you've got to hold them accountable when they cross lines, including yeah. breaking the law. You've got to compete in state houses to start creating an incentive for them to be not just extremists. If you leave states and state houses uncontested, then again, the only thing they do they benefit by is by being extremists. So. Once you see that they're fighting a very different political battle, my hope is it makes us, of course we want to win what we're winning, but we've got to go a little bit broader and deeper what we're doing if we're going to succeed against what they're doing.
1: I want to dive into that a little bit more, but we do need to take a break. Uh, uh, Everybody, this is David Pepper I'm talking to. You've met him before. You want to hear more about what he says? Stick around. We'll be back in a second.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, we're back, and I am talking with David Pepper. David, I, here's what I worry about, and, and you got to help with this. And listen to the State of the Union, as you did, and leaving aside the incivility that I think is common everywhere in America now, um, and we heard from Marjorie Taylor Greene, and there was something about you know the president comes in. He talks about his accomplishments. He points to people in the audience. He talks about what he wants to do. It's, it's something that felt very normal. And and Joe Biden, f- whatever you want to say about him, he's a sort of throwback to a kind of president many people are are comfortable with. And and and, and that I like that, right? But then you listen to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, and it doesn't feel normal at all. It feels. Uh, pre-enlightenment feels uh, religious zealotry. It feels closed minds are where the strength is, right? But it's, you know, like 11 people watched that speech of hers. And and a lot of people dismiss the incivility of the people who heckled the president. Um, But while we are pretending things are normal, there's some very serious dangerous stuff bubbling up that, that, Um, And you've written about it. You've talked about whether it's Orban in Hungary or wealthy funders in the U.S. like Peter Thiel or governors like Ron DeSantis who just don't believe in democracy. And they have these tactics that are very effective in their anti-democratic battle. And I wonder if you could just once again, like, help everybody understand those tactics so they see them and they can begin to defend.
2: The last part, you want me to do what?
1: Well, just to help people again see these anti-democratic tactics. Sure. Sometimes, you know, in a, you feel like things are normal and you don't notice what's right in front of you.
2: Correct. Well, let me just put it this way: if we saw in another country the following things all happen at once, what will we say? You know, the rigging of districts so that the results of almost every legislative election was guaranteed, and a minority party stayed in power even when the majority voted for the other side. And then let's say that party uh, systematically made it more difficult for the people who voted against them to, to vote the way they usually vote. They just made it either got rid of those ways of voting or made them more difficult. or if that majority if that party in power simply ignored court rulings or criminalized aspects of protests that the other side protested or you know or ignored constitutional you know written rules, changes voted on by their own voters. Uh, try to strip power when someone wins another election that threatens them. I say all that to say, or or, or even start banning books or or censoring history. If all those things happen at one time in another country, and that's what happened in Hungary, we'd all see it very clearly, wouldn't we? We'd say, my God, that country is losing its democracy. Everything I just described is happening in Columbus, Ohio, and so many other state capitals around the country as we speak. But because we focus on people like Trump and Marjorie Taylor Greene instead of institutions, and because one institution we never focus on are state houses, we don't see it in the same way we would see so clearly if it was happening in other countries. So, yeah, it it really should be seen that way. It should be talked about that way. The media should cover that way. They generally do not. And although I like what Biden said and I thought it was effective communication, I think the the attitude and tone in which everyone from Merrick Garland to others deal with some of what we're seeing should be, frankly, more robust. Because, we, you know, you send a message by not just what you say, but how you say it and, and what you do in particular. And the message that has been sent uh, by the fact that, you know,
1: David, I seem to have lost you.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, David Pepper and I are both back. And, um, David, when we, when we went to break, you, we were talking a little bit about uh, the State of the Union. And you were making the point that, you know, it felt um, it, it didn't feel like house on fire. Right. It was a, it was a conversation about a lot of good things, but it was ignoring this battle for the democracy that's underway and where it's underway. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, look, w- w- once we know that we're in that fight, um, then the battles we Democrats all have with each other seem very small, but they, they, they seem very small to me about that. But it seems like uh, Democrats can't let go of them. Like, you're not progressive enough or you're, or you're too progressive, and we have those fights all the time, and, and, and they are not letting us pay attention to the sort of melting of the ice under our feet.
2: Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I, I wrote that in this book I've written, that, that to fight over, again, very important issues, but to not see the bigger fight for what it is, which is the ability to even have fights in a democracy about issues. Through a political process is a real mistake and you, you you look back in history you know one reason that we got jim crow was even though everyone saw what was happening in the south um around all these new laws and the rise of the kkk at some point the northern folks who generally did not like what was happening kept fighting about other things and um that that those internal squabbles allowed the site that was the side that was unified around around um, bringing Jim Crow out. They won. So you can't yeah. you can't get yourself distracted by that stuff uh, too much. And you also though need to break bread if there are Republicans who actually support democracy, even if you disagree with them on some things. If they're willing to live with the results of democracy, we got to work with them on these things. And I think so. Yep. I think the t- the teams change once you see the battle for what it is. One other caution: this is so much bigger than Donald Trump. And sometimes we're letting our our you know, focus on Trump blind us to the fact that the attack on democracy that we're going through began before he ever decided to run for office. It began with the gerrymandering of voter suppression that followed Obama winning. It continued. After he left office, and if you don't think they would have continued to ban drop boxes, not give water out at Georgia polls or gerrymander, just be, you know, because of the big lie, that wasn't because of the big lie. That's because they were going to do it either way. So, yep. so um, w- that's the other thing is when we make it about Trump, we sort of blind ourselves to how big it is and what we have to do. And, and we celebrate defeating Trump like that saved democracy, that's not enough. It's it's important. He made things worse. But the, the, to really to protect democracy, we've got to go a lot deeper and further than just, you know, beating Donald Trump.
1: And, yes, we have to focus on the institutions.
2: Yeah. And the Koch brothers, the Koch brothers were doing this long before Trump came forward. And the irony last week that the Koch brothers said that they weren't going to support Trump. If anyone thinks, well, that's a good sign for democracy. No, they were at this before he ever decided to be in politics. So if they decide they want to support someone else, that should scare us, too, because they're finding someone else who will keep this agenda going separate from Trump. Uh, so we've got to sort of separate it from Trump, although he's part of it, and we've got to see sort of a big picture, which makes, again, the teams don't fight amongst yourselves if you agree with democracy, move forward to protect democracy. Then we can agree to disagree on all sorts of things once we've really locked into place more protections.
1: David, is it too early to preview your new book? Uh, No, actually
2: not at all, because it's an extension of the other one. Um, The the first book I wrote, as you know, is called Laboratories of Autocracy, and it walks through in very specific ways what we've described, the game plan of undermining democracy largely through state-level politics. Uh, At the end of the book, I go through 30 steps I recommend we all do to combat this. I'm not just complaining. I'm trying to say what we can do. I got a lot of readers who said, David, I had to skip to the end. I was so depressed about all that's happening. I wanted to know what to do. So I skipped to the end. Now, I would tell everyone, we won't be effective until we see how bad it is. So you shouldn't skip to the end. But that feedback was so common, I decided I'm going to write a second book. It's only about what we should do. If you want to read all the bad stuff about what they're doing, that's the first book. The second book from the very beginning almost is saying, if you're concerned about democracy, here are steps that you can take right now in your community, online, on your own computer to deal with it, to do something about it. Because I worry that we we basically, a lot of people feel disempowered, and we haven't given people enough of an instruction about the many, many, many things they could be doing right now if they're worried about what's happening with democracy. So that's really what the second book is. I think of it yep. almost as a user's manual for every American who's concerned about democracy.
1: That's, And I should tell everybody that, that uh, David kindly let me see an advanced uh, copy of it, and I thought it was fabulous. Um, I uh, will be teaching a course at a local university on – uh American democracy in the spring quarter and David's texts are going to be part of that course because um they're very clear and helpful. So um That's great. uh, Well hey I'll hit
2: the road and come I'll hit the road and come join your class if you want me to I'd love to get
1: get to I I will I will send you the details. We'll we'll work that out. I um I'd like that very much. But but David, let's talk a little bit more um about the second book. The title I believe is still Saving Democracy, right?
2: Right. And then a and user's when, manual. So it's it's basically what you can do. Yep. When it does it come out? out? Uh, so I am, uh, my hope is it'll come out late spring, early summer. I'm working on it quickly. And okay. I work with a company that lets me get these things out quickly because time is of the essence.
1: Well, yes, it is. So do you want to just tell everybody three or four of the things that they can do?
2: Sure. I mean... Number one, we have to run everywhere. We have to run everywhere. We can no longer view this as simply a few swing states that we care about. Uh, When we do that, we lose. And when we do that, we let extremism run rampant and get worse. Uh, So, you know, the one thing everyone should do is we start building towards 2022 when, when most state legislatures are up. Make sure that there is an opponent in every single district in this country which means everywhere where all of you live, you know, in parts of Illinois, it won't be a problem, but you start going beyond there. If you have a broader listenership, we can no longer allow dozens of districts in each state to go uncontested. It is, it's absolutely damaging in so many ways that I walked through the book. So take some ownership over that and try and help there. Number two, there are certain states, just like we saw some big wins in Michigan and Pennsylvania in the last, cycle. We just picked up Pennsylvania with some specials the other day in, in the Philly area. Uh, there are other states just like that. And, and one, one group that I really like, if people are interested, is called the States Project. And what they do is, they, if, if, let's say you have a bunch of your listeners in a blue district in Illinois, and they feel like, hey, we're fine here. We're not worried about democracy in our district. Well, go adopt some candidates in the Pennsylvania State House or the arizona state house or some other states and help them because just like we won michigan and pennsylvania last november and that's a huge move forward for democracy and and a lot of people help those candidates from a long way away you can do the same thing And I, i've been involved in a lot of zoom calls where people from some blue areas adopted people in red areas to help them and by the way
1: hold that thought for one second those of you who are listening there is an Absolutely essential Supreme Court election in Wisconsin now. So you heard David. Get focused on that Wisconsin Supreme Court race. You can. There are lots of ways you can help. Um, uh, Go to WIS Dems and you you, you sign up right there. Um, uh, Plenty of ways to get involved. Really important. Okay, keep going.
2: Given what you just said. Wisconsin, you know, we just won these three specials in Pennsylvania, won the Pennsylvania State House. Huge accomplishment versus a year ago where we were down 10. Wisconsin's coming up. Same same reason I mentioned Ohio and North Carolina help Wisconsin. And then this year, we do have the Virginia State House. And I don't want Youngkin, like no one else in this call, I don't want Youngkin writing the voting rights laws of, of uh, Virginia going to 24. Do you? Uh, so The same way. So pay attention to Virginia state house races. We have the slight majority, I believe, in both House and Senate, but it's very close. And that's that's the next step. And then for 24, same thing. The other thing I'd say to folks, um, so much of the, And again, I can't speak to Illinois, but, but let's let's go beyond just Illinois. Anyone listening in any audience of this book I'm writing, so much of the attack on democracy is is happening through the disengagement and direct attack on. The diverse majority of this country, let's call it the Obama coalition, black voters, young voters, seniors to some degree, people who, who don't have as many means. That's who's being attacked through voter I.D., through voter suppression, through purging, and that's who's being divided up through gerrymandering.
1: So yeah, college students, too. College yep. students have been crushed. This
2: new voter I.D. law in Ohio is going to crush college students because a lot of them are not from Ohio. They're not gonna get Ohio driver's license and all of a sudden they're gonna to be told they can't vote here. That, yep. That's all intentional. So one thing I would say to everyone, even if you're not like a hardcore Democrat, but you care about democracy, think about every single way that things you do every single day that could actually be places where voters are engaged to register, to vote early, to get a voter ID. You know, I give an example when Sherrod Brown was the Secretary of State of Ohio. He, he convinced McDonald's to put on every single tray of a voter <laughs> registration form. Well, how could you do that, in, that? That scale, you know, here's the problem. The attack on democracy is at a massive scale. It's the Koch brothers' billions. It's, it's a, officials full-time every day thinking about it. We are fighting back too much on a voluntary part-time basis. And the, the thing I ask people to think about when I write this book is how can you scale up your effort to engage voters you know are you on the board of a homeless shelter is it registering voters you help volunteer at a food bank is it registering voters it should be those are the very targets of voter suppression so think about all the things you do in life way beyond your political activity the work you do with nonprofits, the volunteer you do your church you name it what could that institution or you through that institution be doing in the democracy because once you start having everyone do that that's when the scale of fighting back is really strong. But too you know, the mayor of every city in this country, led by a Democrat, are they using every part of their public footprint— their rec centers, their libraries, their public housing—to lift voters back into democracy? Again, those are the very voters being knocked off the rolls. If you know the mayor, ask them why they're not doing that, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's so much that can be done it, because we don't see what they're doing as clearly as we should. We don't really do because we don't think we have to or we don't think we should. We have to. Um, so that's a lot of what's in this book. You know, it goes into a lot more specifics, but that's a lot of it.
1: So, and, and David knows this, and, and you guys are listening to this. There are so many organizations out there that you can find that will help you do this. So you're not alone. Right. It's, it's not just state parties. If you're squeamish about state parties, you know, organizations like the States Project, like Swing Left, like Run for Something, if you feel Correct. like you've got it in you, all of this stuff. I mean, the, the the social civic infrastructure for being involved in the democracy has grown. I mean, David, I think that is part of the healthy yeah. response to this. Challenge, right? In the last few years, yeah,
2: it's organic. It's yeah. but it is there. You know, there's a group I talked to today called Nonprofit Votes. If you're a nonprofit, you just heard what I said. You think, yeah, I want to register everyone I serve at my homeless shelter. Well, if you look up the organization Nonprofit Votes, they'll show you how to do it and make sure you're following the law. So there's a lot of help out there, but it's going to start with every individual just simply thinking, you know what? One of my New Year's resolutions this year is to lift democracy and to fight back. And there's, once you've made that commitment, there's so many things you could do.
1: Um, yeah. And I mean, you've changed your life in this fight. I've changed mine. Um, it, 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 and it's not, I mean, it may not be the most uh, economically successful change I've ever made, but I gave up a different life to come back and fight on democracy. And I, and it yeah. makes me, feel alive every day and so people should just it is a good fight to be
2: in yeah and, and and where and once you see it for what it is it's the same fight that the suffragists were in and john lewis were in and it and in that way you also realize it's a long fight so you don't just judge everything based on one election cycle either so i think once you've committed yourself it's a longer-term fight frankly you're more inspired to keep going because you realize that every time you do something for the good, you register new voters or something, it's all benefiting that long term battle. Um, and that's why, even though the book is, my first book is a little bit dark, when people are done with it, I feel like they're pretty energized because they now see the picture for how they need to see it and they can see how they can be effective in it.
1: So we've been through this before and it doesn't always take time. I mean, i I think Lexington and Concord were 1775 and we didn't get a constitution till 1789, right? That was 14 years. These are long fights. And, um, I'm, and I'm not saying you, you know, uh, you're Thomas Paine, but common sense was written early on in this fight. It takes a long time for people to um, stand up to power that doesn't believe in democracy and win. And it takes consistency. It takes staying in the fight, and you have to want it more than the other guys.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you look back at our history, there's always a group of people seeking power, seeking money through undemocratic ways. I mean, that's been most of the result of the battle doesn't come down to whether or not those people exist. They always exist. If you look at how, you know, we overcame Jim Crow or how we let Jim Crow set it in the first place, the determining variable of who wins, sorry, I'm in a little play area. Because the, the no, it sounds great. Variable, <laughs> the determining variable about who wins that fight for democracy is the robustness of those fighting for it. That's who determines it. And so, again, you know, the, the side battle against democracy has always been there. They've always been there. They're always doing it, and their intent is for them to do it. But they are not going to determine the outcome. It's the strength of those fighting for democracy that ultimately determine it. And when they weaken, when they aren't seeing the fight for what it is, or when they compromise, that's how we got Jim Crow after Reconstruction. That's how we lost you know, but we, we lost. We, we sort of got our eye off the ball after Obama won. We, we kind of thought we had made it. And the truth is you're never, you've never made it. You're always fighting. So we let them win these state houses and gerrymander the hell out of these places. So you you got to really the, – the robustness of the fight for democracy is actually what determines the outcome. Yep. And if that's why we keep going, That's do what it is.
1: It's a good reason. And, and we focused – and you focused so appropriately on the state houses. I would say they have one partner in the federal government, and that's the Supreme Court. And we took our eye off there, and they captured it. Yeah. Right? It's a captured court. Yeah, and that's a problem. So. That's okay. And once you realize –
2: where their game is, and it's it state houses, you realize that the Supreme Court's most valuable service for their overall strategy is it's protecting state houses doing what they're doing. Because 20 years ago, if you had attacked voters the way they are, if you had got, gone after a woman's right to choose the way they did, the older court, even when it wasn't all Democrats, would have struck all those laws down. So right. the, 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 you know Mitch McConnell knows this everything's about protecting states to do what they're doing. In the court, in the federal judiciary, being conservative, the most valuable role it's playing is they attack democracy. It's allowing all those attacks to stay in place versus, again, not long ago, those attacks would have been stopped by the Voting Rights Act or by Roe v. Wade or something else. So it's it, they're sort of the shield. I think of it, state houses are the sword on offense. The shield for them are, are the federal courts saying, we're going to let you do all this in a way that you wouldn't have been able to do it even 15 years ago, and that, yep. by the way, exactly how they got Jim Crow too. You know, the state how the states passed crazy, awful constitutions, and ultimately the court basically eviscerated the 14th, 15th amendments and said you can do all those things.
1: They allowed it. So yep. It's hundred 100 years time. of darkness. Yep. Yeah. Well, David, thank you, as always. Um, um, I I hope that the place that you're in is as full of joy as it sounds like
2: it is. It's a lot of trampolines uh, and basketball. We're buying up a trampoline for my son today, so I'm sorry if you heard the back. No, that, that is
1: absolutely fabulous and a great metaphor for the ups and downs. Of our exactly. <laughs> I, I, I'm separately and offline. I'll be in touch to about joining me in class. That'll be fun. Awesome. Um, but for everybody listening, David Pepper, uh, uh, his, his book is Laboratories of Autocracy, his new book coming soon, Saving Democracy. Did you say a handbook, a guidebook? A user's a manual book?
2: for every American, yeah.
1: A user's manual for every American. All right, pay attention. Yeah. It'll be out soon. Thank you, David. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. All talk right. to you soon. You bet. And for the rest of you, we're going to take a break for the news. And when we come back, uh, Will Bunch is here. It's another treat. Stay tuned.
0: Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge.
1: I wake
3: up. I need to know what happened.
0: I turn on the radio because information is power. WCPT 820. You're listening to the big picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, hey everybody, a little after two o'clock here in Chicago, and it's time for Will Bunch, the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Um, he joins me from time to time. He's got a pretty remarkable view of the world. Will, welcome back.
4: Thanks. I, I don't know if anyone's ever said that about me before. That uh, uh, I, I hope it's remarkable in a good way, but uh, uh, thank you so much. I, Thanks
5: for having me.
1: Well, you and I have covered a lot of ground uh, in terms of subject matter and even geographically in our discussions, but I don't think you and I have ever gone to Florida. So let's spend some time talking about Florida, because you you wrote about it this week. So you've got the Marquis de Mar-a-Lago and Florida's governors DeSantis, and they have something in mind for the children of that state. I think it's worth spending time on. Yeah, you
4: know, I, uh, you know, I basically, uh, in, in this idea, I think really took root Well, in a couple ways. Uh, you know, this idea of putting education and what happens in your kids' school is, is really kind of the big front burner political issue.
6: Because, you know, I mean, the federal,
4: and I'm talking about, I'm talking about the, the 2024 presidential election, you know, because I mean, historically, I mean, we all know that the, the Federal role of in 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 k through twelve education is really secondary towards you know your local school board to some degree states and the amount that they you know contribute financing and 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 obviously there is a federal role but it's you know it's it's kind of more big picture stuff and and we we've seen presidential candidates make a big deal about education before you know george uh, w bush in particular uh uh, you know, wanted to be the education president and, and, and all that. So it's not, it's not totally new, but, uh, you know, after, at first with the, you know, with the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter protest after George Floyd was murdered in, in, in 2020, you know, with, with that and, uh, uh, you know, whipping up this kind of panic about what kids are being taught about issues like race in the classroom. And what conservatives call CRT. And then, and then the next year in 2021, you know, they had Glenn Youngkin make a lot of, about these issues in his race to become governor of Virginia and he won. Um, that, that may or may not be why he won, but, uh, that certainly got a lot of attention. So, so now, you know, we have two clear front runners in the Republican race to be president. No, nobody's even close to Trump and, and and Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, and what you've seen is, uh, and it's funny because Republicans usually aren't that big on policy, as we know, but but there is there has been something of a bidding war, or I, I actually call it a race to the bottom. Is a kind of play on Barack Obama's education policy that he called race race to the top. I mean, this this is a race to the bottom in terms of waging culture wars in in schools that would, you know, harm transgender youth would really just have a chilling effect on academic freedom in the classroom, you know, with teachers being rated for their, you know, Trump has proposed, not rating, but certifying teachers uh, as being patriotic, which is just, I mean, just, you know, horrifying. I mean, it's a bit, you know, and uh, um, uh, he wants to, this whole idea of parental, control of what goes on in the schools. I mean, mean, Trump has actually proposed, and I I don't know how you would do this as as the federal policy, you know, with local school boards, but, I mean, Trump has proposed uh, parents electing their kids, principals, uh, you know, direct elections, you know. Um, And, of course, DeSantis uh, is not formally running for president yet, so he doesn't have, like, a presidential platform, but on the state level in Florida, he's been out there on education issues almost every day, uh, uh, again, all, all cultural war stuff, you know, the, whether it's the don't say gay law, I mean, he's done a lot in, in higher ed in terms of, um, you know, taking away tenure, uh, limiting what professors can say, having schools uh, give him reports on how much they spend on diversity and uh, inclusion, equity, um, those sorts of things. Um, so so you're really seeing this competition, really who can who can outdo each other with the most draconian proposals for, you know, waging cultural wars in the classrooms and accusing teachers of being liberal indoctrinators. You know, Trump Trump when he uh, released his education policy basically said you don't want your kid being taught by quote a pink haired communist unquote and that's that's the image of, of your kids' teachers if they they want to get out there. So, so it, it, I mean, it's a major, it's a major development politically. Uh, it's not, not something that's been a major issue talked about in this way in the past.
1: Um, before you came on, I was talking with David Pepper, and he told me something, a story that I hadn't seen. But apparently a large homeschool network in Ohio um, has been – uh, yeah. uh, sharing, using uh, Nazi, uh, I guess propaganda as part of its uh, teaching uh, curriculum. So we now see that Nazi propaganda is okay to teach on the right, but letting one read a book that has a gay character in it is not. And that is um, um, just a crazy view of government anywhere, but certainly government in a democracy.
4: And it keeps going farther, and farther. So actually, um, uh, uh, I, I write I write a column over the weekend, which is kind of weird. Uh, they, they do give me Friday off in return for that. But uh, yeah, so I work over the weekends, and I'm actually interviewing people right now, and I'm going to write a column tomorrow morning about a school district here in Pennsylvania that. Um, uh, you know, for the annual kind of you know celebration of reading, they do they do the one book. You know, some communities do. do uh-huh. uh, Chicago does one.
1: Chicago community.
4: does it. Yep. Right. and Philly, does it? So they they, they want to. Um, you know, they, they do this thing, one school, one book, which is which is a, a thing that mimics that in the middle school. And this year, they picked a book that was about climate change. And all hell broke loose, you know, and, uh, you know, people are instilling fear in these kids and, you know, this, this is political and it's political indoctrination and the uh, superintendent gave, uh, and they're
1: not. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. that. would they replace yeah. it with? Mein Kampf?
4: The other thing, the other thing is, and, and, uh, <laughs> like I said, I was just talking to, I was just talking to a, a liberal, school, or a
1: Democratic
4: school board member, uh, uh, right before I got on the phone with you. And, uh, you know, and he, and he said, you know, the reason, the reason the superintendent um, pulled the book was because some of the teachers were saying, well, look, this is just going to be a political distraction. We, we just don't want to deal with it. And, and that's, that's the whole point of this, Edwin. You know, it's like, this. this it, it, it's not just, I mean, it, it's bad, the particular books that are being banned or challenged or whatever, but it's not just that book. It's, it's creating a whole climate of fear in the classroom where teachers are terrified that something they say is going to get them, you know, brought up before the school board and, and bring the ire of the community, you know, uh, you know, especially, you know, t- teachers in these more conservative communities. This is, this is out in Berks County, Pennsylvania, which, you know, voted heavily for Donald Trump and, um, uh, And that's the same thing with Ron DeSantis in Florida. You know, I mean, his, his policies are terrible, but if you talk to teachers, the bigger thing is just the general climate of fear. It's like, you know, can I, can I mention Martin Luther King or can I mention Rosa Parks or am I going to be brought up for violating the law that I wasn't supposed to even mention these things? Well, I better, you know, I better just steer away from anything having to do with race
1: whatsoever you know and uh, well, se- well well self-censorship is one of the tools that every tyrant uses they set rules that yeah. aren't completely clear because they know that that people will be afraid and they will then make it even more extreme um everywhere i mean the chinese government has done this for years i worked uh, you know, in non-democratic countries in the Middle East for years, I saw it happening. It's an assault, not just making people afraid, um, is an assault, not just on a particular piece of curriculum, but on thought itself. Yeah,
4: it, yeah, it, it, exactly. And, uh, yeah, you know, and it, it really it really can be said about so much about what DeSantis does as a governor in Florida, that he just has... This incredibly autocratic style. I mean, uh, I, I mean, beyond the classroom. I mean, he did the same thing, you know, with voting, with this thing where uh, a month before the election, he went in, out and arrested twenty mostly African Americans on these trumped-up voting fraud charges. And again,
1: most of which have been dropped since then. Yeah, with,
4: yeah, yeah. I think I, I think a couple they tried to even bring to trial and it collapsed, and all yep. the charges have been dropped. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, but, you know, meanwhile, these people, I mean, these 20 individuals had had to go through hell, right? They were handcuffed and, uh, you know, had had to get a lawyer and deal with this whole thing. And and that's terrible. But the real goal is thousands of other voters, you know, again, mostly black or any voter who... Uh, has had any interaction with the law in his past, he's now thinking, wait a minute, am I, am I uh, going to get swept up in this? Like, if, you know, is, is it worth voting in my local school board election uh, versus the risk of, you know, somebody, a police officer showing up at my house a couple months later and taking me out in handcuffs, you know? Um, and, um, you know, so... So you're suppressing the vote you know so i mean he, he's suppressing speech he, he's suppressing the vote and um you know if he were elected president in 2024
1: this would don't, be say governor- don't, don't say government. don't say it don't say it but let, actually let's talk about whether he could, Will. Um uh, you, you have a you have a man who's saying, I will protect the real America from these freaks who don't believe have our values who are coming after us, right? Those freaks happen to be people who are black, people who are gay, maybe people who are Jews, now, anybody who you know believes in climate change, right? Anybody who's not like him is defined as an other, just totally reified, not human beings. So he's going to go out and do that and, say, and and we're going to ban their books and we're going to shut off their radio stations and we're going to, you know, we're going to jail their activists because we can do that. Honestly, here in the upper Midwest, maybe because it's cold and winters are long, we read. So things like book bans don't sit very well. I just I just cannot imagine that he would get any traction around the country.
4: Well, yeah, and, and uh, you know, obviously, and uh, uh, you know, to, despite recent history, it's kind of like like George Santos getting elected to Congress on Long Island. I mean, I mean, you can beat these people, but you have to have an opposition. So, I mean, I think uh, I, I think that's absolutely right. But I think it's, I mean, it's, and it's certainly partly up to us and the media. Speaking as a member of the media, it's up, you know, it's up to us the report, what's really happening and, and what the real significance of these things. And but it's also but it's also important it's also incumbent on Democrats to, you know, both call this out and offer offer an alternative. And uh you know, and and in 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 writing about in my column that you know, that it is about Trump and DeSantis, but it's also about can the Democrats counter that or or really I mean, does this create it like Kind of like you said, I mean, is this creating a golden opportunity for the Democrats uh, to take something that I, I agree the majority of the public doesn't like Bookstanding at all. They hate it, you know, and this should be something that should be, you know, like T-balls. We all teed up for the Democrats to, yep. to knock it out of I the mean, park, you know, and
1: we, yeah. And, it that, was like, a, and there is some of that.
4: Yeah.
1: Go ahead. It was like about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I, I, it dawned on me and I was talking to someone on this show and, and I just said, look, it's time for Democrats to fight the culture wars because it's on our side now. The behavior on the right wing is not what American culture is about. And if we're going to defend American culture, then you're going to defend the democracy. You're going to defend our diversity. You're going to defend the open mind that has so characterized our Progress through the centuries, and the Republicans—I uh, don't know what they're what they stand for. It's sort of before the age of the Enlightenment, <laughs> you know, sort of a closed mind, religious, very narrow view of the world. And that um, I think we take that culture war, and I think we win that culture war.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean,
1: you well, let's do a that. thought. Let's do a thought experiment. And- let's do a thought experiment. Ready? Right. Did you watch Sarah Huckabee Sanders give her response to the State of the Union? I didn't see the whole thing, but I, I uh, because I,
4: I, it was relevant to what I was writing, so I actually yep. went back and read the transcript of it. So
1: okay. Okay. Yeah. even worse. So all right, now yep. <laughs> let's just let's just like let's transplant that and say you show that to audiences in pick your state. How many of them are going to resonate with with that? Like satanic view of the world
4: <laughs> yeah i you know i mean uh you know i i'm I'm kind of looking forward to see how the twenty twenty four race and you know i i mean you know I, you know i I'm assuming right now if nothing dramatic changes, you know that biden is probably going to be his most likely most the most likely democratic candidate but it'll be it'll be interesting to see how things play out in a state like david peppers Ohio, right? You know, mm-hmm. where a program is, is creating jobs. Do- I mean, it seems like there's a lot of good job creation stuff going on in Ohio right now, whether it's the semiconductors thing or, or uh, alternative energy or whatever.
1: Uh, well, going on everywhere. I mean, America's seeing an incredible economic um miracle i really think right now um and 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 different from for the first time in a very long time people in the middle and the bottom are benefiting um right as, as so it's not just the top and that is that is profoundly important
4: yeah and so and so it'll be fascinating to see whether that matters to working class voters uh, and not just the white working class, you know, the Latino working class, and, and other working class, and and the black working class, and other yep. working class constituencies that are, felt you know kind of up for grabs. I mean, or are they still gonna go for grievance politics? You know, the things I wrote about in in my book that has pitted college educated versus non college educated voters against mm-hmm. each other. Is that still? Is that still going to be the dividing line, no matter, no matter what Biden and, and the Democrats have done to create jobs for people without college degrees? Yeah, it's it, it's fascinating, you know. But, but I was what I was going to say was that one thing I got into a little bit in my column, although really I was just building on a really good piece that Greg Sargent of the Washington Post had written a few days earlier, where he and and you mentioned the upper he he really focused on the upper Midwest specifically, and uh, and talked about. You know, that well the Michigan where you now have the uh, unified democratic government for the first time and and yep. um, what they're gonna be able to do on education, teacher you know, real education issues like teacher recruitment, for example. And he also and, and he and he talked about your governor there in Illinois, Pritzker and uh and uh, uh that you know, Pritzker seems to be that guy He's really good at he's gonna be really good at aggressively making this into an issue and, you know, and he's out there saying, you know, Illinois doesn't ban books, you know, and that, that should be an ad, you know, I mean, I mean, the Democrats- it will be,
1: it will be, I can, I can assure you, it will be. I mean, I, I don't know. I want to go back to Sarah Huckabee Sanders again. I don't know how to understand what she, what she was saying. I know she wasn't talking to me, right. She was talking to her cult, but it's in, yeah. it's unintelligible to the rest of us.
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, there was one incredible line of that speech, which I, which I used in my column. But I mean, uh, you know, she said that every day, every day, liberals expect us to uh, uh, take part in their rituals, you know, worship, worship their, salute their flag, and worship their false idols.
1: What's that? Yeah. So, what does that mean? Because my my flag is stars and stripes, right? It looks sort of like it's blue and red and white, and you know, I didn't know it wasn't her flag too. What is she talking about?
4: Right. I mean, I mean, what 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 are the false idols that uh, you know kids in Chicago, I guess, and Berkeley and the Upper West Side are allegedly? Worshiping. I, I have no idea what you're talking about. And,
1: right, and, but, I mean, but the idolatry and, that I see, Will, is the AK-47, right? That they, that I mean, there is idolatry of things going on in America. I see it on the right.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, if there's a, if there are false idols, uh, I think... I think their names are Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, I mean, and, and, and all the graven images of Trump that are out there. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, that seems like a false idol. But, you know, but, yeah, you're absolutely right about Sarah Huckabee though. I mean, she, she's speaking in this, like, dog whistle code that only somebody who watches Fox News for 11 hours a day can understand. Uh, yeah. They get know, the, the like secret United
1: decoder United. ring we used to get in the, you know, in the back of the comic yeah. books. Right, you, you turn on Fox News
4: and you turn on, you turn on uh, you know, Sean Hannity or something, and and you can decode this secret message about the about the uh, the false idols and and the flag, um, uh, uh, you know, and and the thing is, I mean, I guess I guess certain people in the Republican base hear hear a speech like Sarah to the Sanders speech and, and 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 they get it they're they're excited but
1: i mean but what do they get will do they get they should take up arms and go beat up paul pelosi i mean that's you know that's what that sounds like to me like the other people aren't human beings they're beneath you get your weapons and save the country and i think that's ultimately um, the most dangerous and divisive kind of rhetoric in a democracy
4: yeah, you're right, and and the other and the thing about it, and then I guess you know we've already seen this to some extent since November and well since 2020, really, and 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 even more so with November is you know the, you know this this message for the Republicans is a losing message, right? Trump lost uh, the Republicans, you know, for the most part, just under totally underperformed in in the 2022 Uh I mean, right now their prospects. I, I don't think, you know. I, I think if the election were held today, I think, I think Biden. And I know, you know, you know people say Biden' all's approval rating not that great, but that's that's voters comparing them to God. You know, when when he's being compared mm-hmm. to, to Santa, I think he wins. I think he wins easily at this point. Um, right.
1: We have a very tough map for the Senate coming up. Very tough, because yeah, many that's, Democratic Senate. That's, right. That's probably a
4: concern. Going into 2024s in the White House, but but I think you know I think I think when the Republicans you know are so convinced of the uh, you know sanctity and of their of their message and when it's, when you see it losing election after election, that's when people turn to violence because it's like you know because they they convinced they're convinced you know if it, it strengthens their conviction that the elections are rigged because uh, you know obviously people wouldn't elect these. You know pink-haired communists you know these you know, mm-hmm. pagans false idols obviously they can't be winning elections so elections have to be rigged and and uh, if we can't and the elections we'll have to take it into our own hands and and uh, you know you've seen you've seen some people doing that like the guy who attacked Paul Pelosi. and yep. you have you have to be worried you have to be worried that you're going to see more people doing this
1: um Yep, or organized and do it, as we saw on January 6th. But, so let me change from from politics to economics, even though they're related. Um, because I, I think people have thought that politics are rigged and they don't work for them. I get that. I know people have felt the economy is rigged and it doesn't work f- for us. Um, and you, you see just people getting wealthy in a way that's unimaginable and everybody else not. Um, until Until... This, uh, Biden presidency, and he's taken, um, real efforts on antitrust for the first time. He's take, he's really made the impact on consumers part of merger and acquisition, uh, work at the Justice Department. And, and he asked for more antitrust powers, um, at the State of the Union. If he can, if he can continue this progress so that growth happens, you know, in the middle and the bottom, so that people feel like the economy is working for them again. Does that begin to leach out some of the venom in the politics?
7: You know,
4: I think a little, a little bit on the margin. I, you know, I think you know, you know, um, you know. I mean, there was this whole theory of Biden's campaign in twenty twenty that um, he he was appealing to this part of the electorate. They quote you probably heard this expression that wanted to go back to brunch right that they want that they were tired of being amped up and anxious about politics all the time when donald trump was president and they wanted to return to normalcy and um you know and so biden won the election and then you know there's still you know trump is still out there and there's still all this you know political fighting and people say oh you know biden returned to promise to return to normalcy, and. And uh, he couldn't deliver that. But like now, like two years into it, I feel like we're kind of in what what normalcy actually looks like, which is not, you know, a nirvana that people hoped it would be. And, you know, wasn't the end of politics or anything, because we still have people like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and all these, you know, and and Mac Gaetz and all these crazy people out there, you know, kind of the last throes of. You know, and it, well, not the left drug because unfortunately they, you know, with the redistricting and whatnot, were able to take back the house. But, but uh, uh so it's not it's not perfect. It's not nirvana. But I think I think Biden has brought has like brought the temperature down already, and I I think we're feeling it. I mean, I, I mean when I watch these nowadays, it's not as it's just not as heart wrenching and anxious as 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 it, as it was a couple of years ago. uh, Well,
1: maybe because the 117th Congress had that miracle and really delivered, I mean, really delivered in a consequential way for America.
4: I I, I mean, it's unfortunate because we know that with the Republican House, you know, that they're not going to be able to deliver any more major legislation for the next two years. but. You're right. The fact that they got so much done in those two years when they had the ability to pass legislation, um, uh, is something that, you know, and, and, and some of these things like the infrastructure projects, like the new semiconductor plants, using you know, these mm-hmm. things that result of legislation in that first two years are going to be coming online now in these second two years. And, um, you know, you know, so it's good. But, you know, when you talk about the economy, You've got you've got so many segments, and and you know I think like, like you said I think I think you were I think you actually nailed it when you said that his his economic moves have really helped people in the middle and on the bottom. You know, people like restaurant workers, for example. Mm-hmm, and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, people, you know when you see these ads at your local convenience store where they're paying like sixteen or seventeen dollars an hour to recruit workers, when you know that. A couple of years ago those jobs were going for like ten dollars an hour um uh and so people people really benefit like that i i do think the people who benefit the most tend to be younger voters or people in demographics that probably voted more democratic or whatever and you and when you say are people still going to be angry i mean i mean one dynamic and, and this not partly just a theory, you know, it's not based on, on research or anything, but I, I do feel that while the job thing benefited, like I said, young people and, and you know, middle class people, probably more black and brown people, um, uh, inflation, which is complicated, I mean, I think a lot of it's because of supply chain and it's a global issue, but you can argue that more jobs and higher wages also contribute to inflation.
1: Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. But,
4: People who've been hurt by some of the higher prices are people on, you know, fixed incomes. People who are retired. People, mm-hmm. people who are. Older. This is the, this is the demographic of people who watch Fox News all the time, right? You know, so they're they're not getting new they're get, not they're not getting new jobs at your local convenience store paying $17 an hour, but they're retired and they're paying more for eggs or steak or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. so, they, so, they, so they they're still mad, you know? So so calming down the electorate I think is is easier said than done because it's such a diverse electorate and people feel these, these, you know, these moves in the economy are felt differently by people in different segments.
1: Well, that's got to be our last word. Uh, Time flies. We'll do this again. Thank you so
4: much. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot, Edwin. Thanks for having me.
1: You bet. All right, everybody. That was the uh, fabulous Will Bunch, the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Excuse me. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll be back for a very different kind of conversation. Stay tuned.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Um, we're going to turn a little different direction now. Zachary Muller is the political director for America's Voice, and he writes a really interesting blog that got my attention. This week, I wanted to introduce you to him and hear more about his work. Zach, welcome.
8: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Before we dive into your work, will you tell us a little bit about America's Voice and its mission?
8: Yes. Yeah, so America's Voice is a immigrant advocacy organization that is fighting for the uh, power and path to uh, for the 11 million of our undocumented neighbors to have a pathway uh, to legal status and citizenship. So we work every day to create um, the conditions for that sort of policy change to come about.
1: Yeah, my own um, senior senator in the state of Illinois, uh, Dick Durbin, if it. The thing that can bring him closest to tears is this issue, which he says he's been working on for more than a decade in the Senate. Uh, let's turn to the, the the piece you posted in January, because I don't think the listeners to this show follow this uh, particular issue, and they don't know that there is an actual serious threat to impeach a cabinet secretary for the first time in many generations. Let's talk about that.
8: Yeah, so um, over the last year and a half, there have been members of the Republican Party, the more extreme wing of the Republican Party, and that's saying something um, with where the Republican Party is today, um, have been pushing for um, an impeachment process and and hearings around DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and they are calling um, to for the U.S. House of Representatives to hold those hearings and then to go through a full impeachment and removal uh, of the DHS secretary. And I think for us, what is really concerning about this um, is is twofold. One that what Republicans are doing here is plain and simple political theater Uh, because even if the house were to move forward on this sort of uh, show trial um, with uh, against uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, the, Democratic Senate um, is not going to move forward on it. So plain and simple, right, political uh, theater that is really just a waste of everyone's time, tax dollars, of Republicans and other members of Congress styming that stuff up and not doing the Real work that they were sent there to do, which is to legislate and govern for the American people. But I think the thing that is really concerning for us is the language and the rhetoric that is being used to push forward um, this sort of impeachment is a language that is reminiscent of the great replacement theory and other white nationalist conspiracy theories that have a direct tie to domestic terrorist attacks that has been happening over the last several years across the country. And Republicans, these members of Congress, are echoing and legitimizing that very um, sort of white nationalist conspiracy theory as part of this push to impeach the uh, DHS secretary, who himself is an immigrant, who is uh, the son of Holocaust survivors, and they're using a white nationalist conspiracy theory dripped in anti-Semitism to try to push that stuff forward. And I think it's really concerning from us to kind of see um, that moving forward.
1: So I I want to take the right wing seriously and say they are who they say they are and they believe what they say they believe. So political theater is what they do. They do it for a reason, which is to say that if our government doesn't deliver for Americans, Americans will be cynical about government. That's always good for autocrats. Um, But they're they're not just echoing white nationalist conspiracy language. They are in fact using that language. This is what they believe.
8: Yeah. I mean, like, um, you know, I, I, I'm not in the business of saying what's in the heart of the heart, but I think what you're saying is, is something that I agree with as well too, right? Is that the actions speak louder than words. And when they repeatedly are using the language of an invasion or replacement, um, using the language that says that um, migrants and asylum seekers, folks looking for safety and their chance at the American dream. And they are arguing that those migrants constitute a literal invasion um, of the United States on our direct material and existential threat to Americans across
3: the country.
1: Now that would be. Let's, the, the let's go through it one time. We have a little bit of time and, you know, the, one of the benefits of this show, I'm glad you're here, is that we can be a little more expansive. So let's just go through all of those arguments, right? Um, they say we have an open border. Do we have an open border?
8: We, we do not have an open border, and nor does the President of the United States and the White House. And no Democrat, to my knowledge, is actually advocating for those such policies.
1: So fact, what is the state of law and law enforcement on the border?
8: So the the state of the border is that the border is actually more secure than it has ever been in mm-hmm. in our history. Repeatedly, over and over again, there has been more and more and more money and personnel being shifted towards the border um, to keep, to secure the border. Now we do there is a refugee crisis in the region where um, desperate um, families and individuals are seeking fleeing violence, seeking safety um, from political persecution, fleeing for their lives, who then present themselves at the border to claim their legal right to asylum, which is their legal ability to say that I have a credible fear for my life and my safety. And then they go through a arduous years long process to be able to to vet
1: those claims. Now let's talk about them one more time, because that's the law. Right. The Republicans, when Donald Trump was president, when they had control of the House and the Senate, if they if they wanted to, I'm glad they couldn't, they could have changed the law. And so the United States won't take asylum seekers. Right. But they left mm-hmm. it there. So they can't now turn around and say, oh, you're obeying the law. They helped. They left that law in place.
8: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, 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 and that's what's so absurd about this push towards I- impeachment is that they are um, angry at um, uh, DHS secretary, not for any legitimate reasons, right? But it is it is a way for them to say, well, we can be um, create this political attack um, around um, and demonize and fear monger against the migrants um, as a way to fundraise um, off of their base to keep their base energized and and fearful uh, of of. Of migrants at the border, of of non white migrants, non white others who are coming, who you know seeking to be a part of the United States.
1: Let's talk about two of their other claims because, um, I mean, maybe if we have time, we can talk about Title Forty Two and Title Eight. But let's leave that aside for a minute. They they use language, hateful language that compares people to fish, right? And they say, "Oh, the government is doing catch and release." Mm-hmm. You want to you want to talk about that, Kennard? Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah, so I I think what you're identifying there is right, is important to start the conversation, is that the language that dehumanizes um, our our neighbors, our fellow humans, Right. that language, when we dehumanize other people, comparing them to animals and and making things less than, right, that leads down a, a really dangerous path in the future. But what they're really talking about there is the United States government following the law that is already set out, Um, As it exists. So when when people come to uh, the United States or come to the border to in fear uh, of their life and safety, they can request asylum. Um, They have to go through a hearing and uh, a brief hearing that is about whether or not they have a real credible fear um, of of a claim to an asylum. So that process then to go through the courts to hear an asylum case with all the backlog and what already exists can take years to come through. And so in that time, while somebody is having a case that is um, up uh, before they're able to actually, the courts are able to rule one way or the other on their asylum claim, then they are released into the United States, um, usually with sponsors or other um, non-governmental organizations like churches and other organizations that that manage um, and help facilitate um these asylum seekers um, to you know go about and try to build their lives and continue on with their lives while they are waiting for their turn in court and while their court, while their case um, their asylum case goes through. So what? Now, according to the Republicans, they
1: never show up for those cases. Republicans say, "Up, oh, that's it. They disappear." Well, which is just factually not true. Uh, right. Overwhelmingly,
8: um, about 80, 80 uh, percent plus of the people that uh, show up for those court hearings. And that's even more uh, the case near 90 percent plus of those who show up for every single one of their court cases if they have legal representation. And so I think it's yep. important for listeners to know who you know may not be adverse in this sort of situation. Um, part is that when you're going for a um, immigration case, whether that be about deportation or for asylum, you are not um, entitled to an attorney. You don't get an attorney if you can't afford one. The only way that you get an attorney in any kind of immigration case is if you yourself pay for that, whether you have the means to do that or not. And so for the one, for migrants who are, um, Able or asylum seekers who are able to afford um, uh, a legal representation, right? Overwhelmingly, right? They're showing up to um, th- those court cases. And, you know, like, think like your, your, your life is you're fleeing for your life, right? And there, of course, is going to be examples where people might miss a few uh, court cases, uh, court dates. Because, you know, if you were imagine yourself in those shoes fleeing for your life going to a different, completely different country, trying to navigate a, a legal system, right? Well, of course, there's going to be a few examples where people uh, don't miss a court date for that
2: reason.
1: Yep, yep. And what about the claim, this also uh, very frightening and dangerous claim, that these people that we're just talking about, these folks these are released into the country, that they're the reason for the terrible fentanyl epidemic.
8: Yeah. So, again, I think this is one of the more pernicious arguments um, and the pernicious lies that are coming from the Republican side, Republican members of Congress. Um, what their claim is, is that they like to associate um, the issues with a very serious, urgent concern around the ubiquity of synthetic fentanyl and the overdoses that we are seeing in our communities uh, with that of, of migrants. And so fentanyl is a complex issue, and we need to deal with that as a health issue, as an international trade issue. There's a many parts of that that need to be addressed. The one thing that fentanyl is not is an immigration issue. Does fentanyl enter the United States um, uh, through the southern border? Yes. But it, where that comes from is through legal ports of entry in commercial traffic. So that's coming in with, uh, you know, your cereal, your uh, your bathroom supplies, um, you know, your paints, your any other kind of commercial vehicle that's coming in. That's where the fentanyl is entering and it's going through a process. Um, And so um, it has nothing to do with actual um, migrants coming in, because if we think about it logically as well, too, if I'm seeking um, to claim asylum and going to the uh, United States Border Patrol, to be able to claim asylum, it would make no sense for cartels to have me carry drugs to do that because I'm going to turn myself in directly. None whatsoever. And so I think the conflation that somehow um, migrants are responsible is a really um, more pernicious argument and and a vast argument to what folks might remember when Donald Trump announced running for president Calling immigrants, drug dealers, and rapists—like this—is this is the manifestation of that as becoming the the the, the core organizing principle um, for the Republican Party, which is to, to again put forward this pernicious lie. And why I say it's so pernicious is that because if we are lying about the problem and the origin um, and the cause of fentanyl, we can never—we're not either addressing the immigration any immigration issues, and importantly, we are unable to have a real serious conversation about the policies needed the life-saving policies needed to address uh, synthetic fentanyl and its use uh, around the united states and from all of the overdoses that we're seeing um and, and, right. and that's it, what's even more concerning
1: yeah so so uh, both in terms of fixing what everybody agrees is inadequate law around immigration um, and addressing the fentanyl problem it's easier for the republicans to keep these problems because they have something to mm-hmm. point to and to demonize. They've hardened around a particularly fact-free, nativist, bigoted dogma that seems at its worst on the subject of our borders, our southern border, and our uh, and, and around immigration and immigrants generally. Hey, when I read your piece, um, and this is just the literary critic in me, I thought you came close to losing it when you wrote about Republican claims that migrants are organized into an invasion force attacking our southern border. I think that one that one really it got to you. So talk a little bit about that.
8: Yeah, so um I I think what this is this is the one that I think is really concerning um for what it means for the long term and where we're at with um, where the Republican Party is at. And when um, Republicans are calling um, migrants a literal invasion force, um, they are using the exact same conspiracy theory that we were seeing in racist screeds from the El Paso shooter, from the uh, murderer who attacked, um, in Pittsburgh in, in uh, 2018, and the Tree of Life Synagogue, and what we've seen most recently in Buffalo, New York, um, last May. Um, in the the racist creed that, that these white nationalists wrote before they went and murdered our fellow Americans, they too were talking about a migrant invasion. They too were talking about these migrants replacing us. And now what we see today is in part of this impeachment push, many Republicans are using that same language to claim that migrants constitute a literal invasion. And when we hear that language, that martial language, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, right, like, well, if there is a literal invasion, well, how do you stop a literal invasion without force? I mean, I think we have to think about the example um, of, the Russian invasion in Ukraine to understand like what a real invasion looks like. And we have seen many Republicans compare our Southern border and migrants looking for safety to the Russian invasion. And while the vast majority of the people will hear those arguments and think, okay, you know, like whether they believe those arguments or not, but even when we have elected leaders uh, normalizing those white nationalist conspiracy theories of using martial language, well, then there's going to be um, somebody who takes it upon themselves to act out um, th- those beliefs. Um, and so whether or not, um, you know, I think it's, 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 there's an analogy, it's, um, it, it's important here, right? Is that Republicans who are using this language are not pulling the trigger, but they are holding the gun. They are creating the climate that creates the conditions for more political violence. And now what we are seeing is now that they hold the majority and are able to set committee hearings, um, in the house of representatives, they are using these committee hearings and leading up towards a Mayorkas impeachment to normalize this language of a so-called migrant invasion. When nothing that could not be further from the truth of like what is actually happening, um, at the border, um, But that language is extremely dangerous. And DHS's own intelligence has been warning for the last several months about real active threats to personnel at the border, to infrastructure. And this isn't just for migrants themselves, but it also puts CBP, um, the Customs and Border Patrol officers, um, in real uh, threats of violence as well.
1: So earlier this week, you guys at America's Voice put out an analysis sort of previewing all the arguments that we're likely to hear. And I think the push for impeachment is going to happen through the Oversight Committee, right?
8: Well, we'll see. I think, you know, there there's a bit of a competition between some of the more the extreme versions of, 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 of Republicans at the moment, whether that be Oversight Judiciary or the Homeland Security Committee or one of the yep. others. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, I would uh, w- we'll see who actually moves forward on that and whether or not we'll actually hear a direct impeachment hearings or we will hear an endless series of hearings where they will again advance these sort of arguments. You know, if, if, um I'm not a mind reader, right, um, uh, who's, who's to tell? But we've already seen in the first two weeks um, the Judiciary uh, Committee. And the oversight committee have already held hearings um, around, you know, the so-called Biden border crisis, where members in both of those committees use those committee hearings to amplify these white nationalist conspiracy theories from the halls of Congress. And I think it's really concerning for us that to have that be the case. And why we've been we warned about it was going to happen because they've been repeatedly sent it, and now we've seen it happen. And I think. Um, it's important for us to say, well, you know, that's maybe um, Paul Gosar or, or like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, well, they're going to they're going to do them. But, you know, I think the normalization part, which is concerning, is to think, well, this is not normal. Um, and it was not too long ago um, in, t- in 2019 when Kevin McCarthy was supportive of the removal of Steve King, the representative, former representative from um, Ohio, after his white nationalist comments were uh, published in the New York Times, his removal from committee. Of and somebody like
1: be a oh, chairman today. They'd make him a chairman. Mm-hmm.
8: Mm-hmm. Did, yeah, and, and, that, and, and, and that's what yeah, and that's what's concerning, right? Is that like we're seeing we're seeing a shift that even by like, 2019, the Republican Party was you know already uh, moving to uh, new extremes <clears> on the hard right and. We're even now further from that. And I think, you know, yeah. the more that we see the normalization of this um, through the attacks at the border, through the attacks on immigrants, it's going to um, permeate throughout the party and in more into uh, society writ large.
1: So we, we do have a crisis at our border. I mean, that is um, Democrats, everybody can acknowledge we have a real problem. The, and we have, we have two different kinds of problems because the dreamers are not a border problem, not in any way. They are our neighbors and friends, people who grew up here. They're just the legal status uh, is um, unacceptable and needs to be fixed, right? That's that's But that's different than the border crisis that we face. And that, um, in an era of, of violence around the world, of uh, increasing uh, divide between rich and poor around the world, increasing climate migration around the world, we are going to see humans move, right? And if the United States says the only thing we care about is our continent and North America and what we're doing here and not help the conditions from which people are fleeing, I might, I might add fleeing American-made guns in the hands of people all over the uh, uh, the world, Um we should expect a human crisis. So what does a great people do about that? You're telling me that we are preparing to get a, a a group of white nationalist Americans to show up on the border and just start shooting.
8: Yeah, and that, that, that's what I'm really concerned about uh, where we're headed towards. Um, and that's why we're trying to raise the red flags to say, hey, yeah. what Republicans are saying here is not normal and is dangerous and has, direct consequences in the real world and a real live body count. And I think it's important for us to understand, too, is that the more that we hear this political theater, it distracts from our ability to solve these crises. Is the United States strong enough and able to manage um, and deal with an fair, humane, and orderly process of global forced migration? Yes, we are definitely able to do that. And we can pass the law through that. Will it be difficult? Yes. But can we do it? Of course we can. But the problem is, is that if we, uh, uh, if Republicans continue to use white nationalist orientation towards the border and we do not have the ability to to move forward that legislation, we are unable to solve those problems. And we create more of the conditions for political violence in the meantime.
1: Yeah, I don't think they want to solve the problem. I think it's too convenient no, for I, I, their...
8: I don't, I, I don't think Republicans want to solve the problem at all, because that's how they fundraise. Um, and this is how they keep their base excited and energized. And while that is true, I think it's really important that we all get very clear um, about what they're doing so we don't take their arguments um, about the border as somehow at face value, because I think it's, they perform well, right? They, they're, they're good actors in the way that they're trying to perform outrage and and concern about issues of, of the fentanyl about about the border but and i think it's important for us to see that that is just a performance that forestalls the ability for us to get mean have meaningful change and that performance actually prevents us from from real solutions um, to yep. save people's lives to deal with real
4: policies
1: I'm going to let that be the last word. Uh, Zachary Miller is political director for America's Voice. This is our first time talking. I hope we can continue this dialogue, um, and I hope that uh, we don't have to go through the charade of an impeachment hearing. Um, But we have real work to do on this issue, and I know we can do it if we pay attention. Thank you very much.
8: I I, I agree. Glad to be be here. Uh, Thanks for having me today.
1: You bet. All right, everybody, we are going to take a break for the news. When we come back, uh, Jill Weinbanks is joining us, and I'll be taking your calls. Stay tuned.
3: The old way of living with diabetes is a pain. You've got to remember to do your testing, and you always need to be sticking your fingers. The new way to live your life with diabetes is with a continuous glucose monitor. You simply apply a discreet, easy-to-use sensor on your body, and it continuously monitors your...
0: You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPD 820.
1: All right, as we always do at 3 o'clock, I tell you to get ready, 773-763-9278. I'll be taking your calls at the bottom of the hour. But first, we're joined by MSNBC legal analyst, author, uh, podcast host, um, uh, an extraordinary woman, and my friend, Jill Weinbecks Jill, thank goodness you're here.
3: <laughs> thank you, Edwin. It is a pleasure, as always, to be with
1: you. Joe, everywhere I go, and when people call in, I hear the same thing, and maybe you can help. They People are saying, Donald Trump keeps getting away with it. He's getting away with it. And and I try to point out that, look, it's a huge and complicated task to indict and convict an ex-president, um, that it would be difficult, even if it was a simple case, for example, like if he stood in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shot somebody. But people are like, This isn't going to happen. And I want to get your take on that. Well, it takes time
3: to develop a strong case against anyone. And in the case of the president, you need to make sure it's a really strong case. But I think the case you posited on Fifth Avenue is a simple case where that would be an easy thing. None of the cases that are out there right now are that easy. They all have an intent element. That without having a live witness, uh, you're relying on circumstantial evidence, which I personally find very persuasive. I think that it would work just fine. Um, but I think we're getting close on a number of these cases. I think that it's going to happen sooner rather than later. And the people will soon be very happy with the outcome.
1: Yeah, I mean, the special counsel... Uh, Subpoena Vice President Pence. And I, and I have two questions about that. One, it sure does feel like that's an endgame kind of thing to do. And I wonder if that's right. And two, I heard that Pence, like, like he was thinking about whether he was going to comply. What does he mean he's thinking about whether he's going to comply? Does he have a choice? <laughs> that's the easy question
3: for me. No, he does yeah. not have a choice. Um, he does have a legal right to raise issues and to cause a delay. Um, and that's fine. But let me just tell you that his uh, claims of executive privilege uh, or Donald Trump's claims of executive privilege for those conversations are not going to work. It is going to be a delay and it shouldn't be that long. a delay in Watergate, we went from a subpoena to a Supreme court decision, April 16th was our subpoena. July 24th was the decision by the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. We argued it earlier in July, and it took Mm -hmm. us less than two weeks to decide. And that case eliminates the need for very much argument or thinking because it makes it very clear that you cannot have an unqualified privilege. And that's what they're claiming. It's qualified in the sense that in the case of a criminal investigation, it gets eliminated when there's a need for the evidence. And in this case, there's clearly a need for Pence's testimony. And so I don't think that there's any chance that it will not be waived.
1: And is this... uh is this where we get to intent, the thing that you said was hard? Is that what Pence can do? Oh, he absolutely can. Um, he, he, you know, He's someone
3: who was in the room. He's someone who had the conversations firsthand. Remember, in trials, so for example, Cassidy Hutchinson was a great witness, but everything she testified to was hearsay. She's telling about something she overheard. And Uh Or something that someone told her, not that she even heard firsthand. So you need the person who was part of the conversation to begin with in order to have it be meaningful. And that's where someone like Pence, who was in the room, can say, I heard him being told by his lawyer that this was not a valid argument. And so that eliminates his, you know, well, I relied on legal counsel, so you know, don't, don't talk to me. It's over and done with. So I think, yeah, he, he would be important on a number of issues, not only on the pressure on him. Remember, I view this as an overall conspiracy, not as a one-time thing. So it's part of this intent to, deprive America of a free and fair election, of an intent to defraud the U.S., you have many aspects. One was his words on January 6th saying, go to the Capitol and, you know, fight like hell. One was telling the vice president, oh, just ignore all the votes and just, you know, count the ones that are for me. Uh, Reject the, the electoral votes of states that I don't like. That's directly Pence. But in addition, Pence, I am sure, was in the room overhearing about the fake elector scheme, for example. So he has a lot of testimony that very relevant and very helpful.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So timing, I mean, it's always a crystal ball. But, um, you know, for reasons that are unfathomable to most Americans, uh, Donald Trump is the current front-runner for the GOP nomination. But I know they're big defections, and I, that includes big funders, but I think right. the only thing that stops him is an indictment and his numbers falling, and then he can say, well, I've decided not to run. Um, and well, then do everybody you think that you, the
2: numbers will
3: fall? I mean, that's the question. Do you actually think the numbers will fall,
1: even if he did an indictment? I do. He still have his base. He will still have a base, but I think they will, they will fall. And I think he will, he will trade. He will opt not to run so that everyone else can say it's a politically motivated prosecution, to, you know, to further undermine our uh, democratic norms. Well, yeah, I, I mean, of course, I, I see it as completely non-political,
3: and most people in the Department of Justice really make their decisions based on what are the facts in front of me and how do they line up with the elements of the crime that I'm looking at. And so, um, you know, I, that's how I think it's going to come out really truly. Um, and I, and I think there's plenty of crimes that are, you know, federal, and of course there's Georgia. Don't forget about Georgia. Um, and it's, it's really just a question of when, not if, in my opinion.
1: And is when, do you think, before anybody has cast a primary vote?
7: Um,
3: I think that if they haven't got it by then, it would be really surprising and unfortunate. It, it, mm-hmm. And, of course, if it's not, you know, once the election actually starts, um, it gets within Department of Justice policy That you start worrying about whether it's going to have a political impact, and the department is very careful about that.
1: Yeah. So they they are they are in a real time crunch now. Yeah, I I think
3: so. I think so. Okay. It is it's time for them to take action, but they also have to take time to make sure they have everything in place before they take action.
1: Right, but they've had. I mean, they've had a couple of years and they've been working hard at it. Um, yeah. Uh, yep, yep. Okay. Well, I, like you, am optimistic that, um, that, the, that the government has not turned a blind eye. And they're not letting everybody get on with it. Um, and that, do you think Donald Trump is the first of the sort of insiders that gets indicted, or do they go for like Eastman first? Um, or together. <laughs> Or together, to Right. Together. Oh, it's a conspiracy. Um, right. Of course.
3: Yeah, it, it, exactly. Yeah. So they can yeah. do it all at one. And, but you know, this thing with, um, Pence being subpoenaed means a couple of things. One, they're getting closer because you don't go for someone at that level until you've done everything below that and are feeling like, okay, I'm in the, the final stages where I need to make sure that I have everything I can possibly have and that there isn't something I don't know that's exculpatory that he has, right. that if he were called to testify, would change the outcome. So right. I, I, I think that's where we're at. And um, I think this is an indication that things are moving along and that you'll it, keep on going. So I feel good about it.
1: Me too, but I feel much better hearing it from you. <laughs>
3: Well, everybody wants it to see, not to just be a possibility. But I, I think yep. we're moving fast. And, um, you know, the Mar-a-Lago case, the obstruction is really what is an issue there. Um, mm-hmm. Not just that they are finding more and more and more documents. Um, right. You know, they just right. turned over some more documents. That's a big surprise, right? Uh, that even after the FBI searched, they found more stuff. So, yep,
1: this time on a I- laptop. Yeah.
3: Exactly, exactly. And that's, of course, that raises the concern even further, was that he did pass it on and that it was on a a laptop and available to who knows who. So we have to really pay attention and see what's going to happen with that.
1: Yeah, and if it heats up, you're going to stop hearing about Hunter Biden's laptop because that's who they are. (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought about the comparison of the Hunter Biden's laptop and his laptop. Yeah. John uh, has, Biden has Biden national security laptop. secrets. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, right. True. Uh,
1: how much did you enjoy the State of the Union?
3: Oh, my God. I loved it. Now, remember, I was a Biden delegate. So I've been a, mm-hmm. a Biden supporter for a long time. And man, was he good. And how he interacted with the heckling and turned it on them, but it was also the content and and the passion of his delivery and the energy of his delivery. So, you know, you have the perfect thing. You had a perfect performance. You had perfect uh, content. And he showed an energy and a liveliness that really um, should put to rest any discussion of he's too old to run. He is not too old to run. Mm
1: -hmm. And did you put yourself through uh, any of Sarah Huckabee Sanders? I did. I did. And I have to say that when she said it's
3: down to a choice between the normal and the crazy, I thought she was talking within the Republican Party, the normal Republicans and all the crazy mega-Republicans. And I guess that isn't what she meant, but it sure came across that way to me.
1: I thought she was just, she just, I thought she was absolutely right, but she had the wrong sides. I mean, exactly. I I, I thought Joe Biden's, performance was great, but also in some ways, normal. You know, he came out, he did what presidents do, he gave a talk about policy and direction, and it was America at its normal best, sort of. Absolutely. You know, there was some heckling, but it was normal. And then she did this, like, satanic ritual that was, like, unfathomable to those of us who didn't get the decoder for the cult. Right. I'm sure she hadn't, obviously, she wrote
3: that for four spoke. I don't know mm-hmm. if she listened to him at all, but she certainly didn't modify whatever she was planning to, to say. And in terms of yep. delivery, think about her sitting there blah. There was no energy to her. Um, no. So it really stood no. in stark contrast. Absolutely. It sure
1: did. I am I'm confident that we are moving in the right direction. I'm confident that we have the energy and the talent for the fight. I mean, I don't want to say we're moving in the right direction. There's no fight. There's a huge fight for our democracy still in state after state. But for some reason, Joe, I woke up thinking this morning about the unbelievable, remarkable Chicago women that, you know, have had, I've sort of worked with in my life who aren't here anymore. And, and Um, Names that people who are listening won't know, but like Marka Bristow or Gail Sinclair or Bernie Wong or Artensia Randolph at CHA, just these gigantic, wonderful heroes. And I was thinking, you know, we spend our time and we look back and we go, oh, why isn't there a Jane Addams, right? A a woman, an early Chicago woman who, you know, won a Nobel Prize and did remarkable things. But in fact, there are. And they're out there every day, people doing these unbelievably great things. And it gets me um, such comfort that, that we have the talent and the energy and the passion to lift the country up.
7: Well, I think the Democratic Party
3: has a lot of those. And it's, it's always hard for me to understand how people can even begin to think about supporting the positions. Um, of the Republican Party, and then you add to that the character of the people espousing those policies, and it is really hard to believe.
1: Well, I mean I, I, like like the I don't understand why why a parent in Florida of any kind, I mean I, I raised you know three kids, two of them uh, would have been subject to this in Florida where they say, you know what? If you're a, you're playing women's sports, you got to report your menstrual cycles. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I like, how is it that, that 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 they didn't just dump Ron DeSantis, you know, in in the ocean for that?
3: Well, I certainly would.
1: And and then
3: don't forget the lawsuit that is challenging the uh, abortion pill in a country where in. How many states you can't have an abortion surgically, and in a country where even if you could, half of all abortions are done through medication, which is a lot easier than going through surgery. And you're trying to stop access for everyone. And it's based on obviously nothing and nonsense. So you think, well, for sure that that'll be uh, eliminated. It's not going to, uh, the the case is going to fail then you look at the courts and you go, I don't know. I can't say for sure that that's what's going to happen.
1: Well, so, Jill, can you, can you tell me what their legal theory is? I mean, I, I looked at it and I thought, I, I mean, you might have well ban aspirin. I don't understand what their thinking is. Uh, it's, it seems ridiculous. It seems to me they've made
3: a, a, a change that was not properly vetted and should never have been Approved And yet it's been safely used for, I don't know how many years, but for a long time. And so there's really no there there. Um, and so it, it, it is an absurd, I mean, it really is an absurd argument. I, I don't know how they can make the argument or how they can you know say, it's one thing to say you can't use it in my state. Another thing to say you can't use it in the entire nation. Um, yeah. and, you know, there's just all sorts of interesting arguments. Uh, there's now a new argument being raised to allow abortion, um, which is the 13th amendment saying that forcing someone to carry to term a pregnancy is, um, something that will force you to, well, I, I don't want to use a, a, the word labor because it is, you know, it's, in slavery
1: and it's the state labor. taking control it's of a woman's body for a period of time,
3: and, which is and forcing, right. Well, it is forcing you into labor, literally, not literally, just labor yes. of, of you know, not just into a um, uh, a factory job, but into nine months of carrying this and then delivering it through labor. But um, mm-hmm. it, I I think that and there's also a second case that's raising under the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act, saying that. Jews and Episcopalians and Muslims and Unitarians are being deprived of their religious freedom because their religion does not recognize a fetus as a being until, depending on which of the religions, in the Jewish religion, it's at the minimum after the first limb emerges from the birth canal. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some, some in, in the more orthodox, it's up to 30 days after the birth before it is at a soul. So those arguments are now being raised in court, and I think they could be successful.
1: And Well, we'll, we'll see if Amy Coney Barrett's view of, of religious freedom extends to religions that aren't her own. I mean, it's a very complicated question for them.
3: It certainly is, and it certainly raises a lot of issues that um, at a time when the Supreme Court is at an all-time low,
1: Um, will be very interesting to see. Well, I, the right is no, um, stranger to filing all manner of things in court that have no chance to pass, but they want to do them performatively. I mean, only recently courts are pushing back a little bit and, you know, fining, uh, uh carrie lake and her friends for just wasting yeah. everybody's time um, and maybe you know i mean i want people to have free access to really access to the courts is enormously important i don't want it restricted but it gets restricted when all the courts are busy taking on nonsense like oh i like, g whiz the elections, exactly. right To a tough very, balance very true yes
3: yeah. Um, there is a lot to be said for that, and it is getting worse and worse and worse with all of these silly cases. There are so many that are, have yeah, absolutely no merit, no merit whatsoever. So, um, and, and of course, we are now seeing finally uh, sanctions imposed on lawyers for bringing these frivolous cases. So, hopefully, more of that will happen, and as a result, people will stop bringing those frivolous cases and we'll be able to proceed without that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, this is important for the people who aren't lawyers, and that includes me to hear, that, there's, that, that, that the, the, the legal profession has um, standards and ethics and you cannot have rule of law if lawyers uh, go into court and lie. Or don't do their due diligence, right? All of this is part of making the rule of law work, and it's deeply ingrained in our legal system. Exactly, exactly. Just another thing that these guys are undermining.
3: Well, and they're getting caught at, and they're now getting punished for. So we have to say it's taken maybe too long, but um, lawyers are being disbarred and being Um. fined. And so that's, I mean, you have to say that's a good
1: thing, that there is now consequences. And and I'm going to say this out loud. Um, And many of the people who are holding these lawyers accountable are judges who are appointed by Republicans. That the rule of law is not meant to be a partisan practice, that it's meant to be a jurisprudential practice. And there are thank goodness, lots of people in the federal judiciary in particular who were appointed by Republicans who aren't as crazy as the handful that made it all the way to the Supreme Court.
3: Well, you know, I'm old enough to remember when we didn't talk about Democratic judges and Republican judges. We didn't know so much or pay attention to who appointed a judge because everybody was doing it in a way that was based on the law. And we, we trusted people. And nowadays, well, not so much. We don't. And it makes sense that we don't, because the decisions seem to be, as you said, you know, I wonder how Amy Coney Barrett's Catholic views will apply when the religion isn't Catholic. And so all the freedom that she's willing to give herself, she's not willing to give to me. And so there you go. We'll see, right? Uh, it's going to be a big test for her. Yes, exactly exactly so the whole court needs to revise itself they need a lot of work um and it's not just her it's obviously thomas and now you know there are many issues on the recusal area so we have Mm -hmm. to pay attention to all of
1: that all so so jill early in the biden administration he he had a commission look at options to restore the integrity of the court and -hmm. they issued a report and it was really interesting. I mean, I read it. It didn't end up recommending any one change, but it argued back and forth about a lot of them, right? And and it included things like expand the court, or right. term limits for the term court limits. or super yeah. majorities. Yeah. Or, or one I thought was really kind of odd and interesting was that there wouldn't be a permanent Supreme Court, but you would pick on a rotating basis judges from the federal judiciary to spend two years on the Supreme Court and then have to go back and live with their decisions back on the you know <laughs> lower court benches. I mean, all of that was interesting. It's all very interesting. And
3: it, you know, there's nothing in the Constitution that prevents doing something like that. These are all things that are possible because the Constitution just says there will be a Supreme Court. It doesn't say there'll be nine. Right. It, and of course, with the caseload having grown, with the population growing, and the number of circuits, you know, it used to be that there were nine circuits. Well, there aren't anymore. So you could easily justify an expansion um, up to 13. and you know, go ahead with it. But we are living in a world where, as you know, without having um, abolishing filibuster, nothing's going to happen. It's just, we're stuck. We're just totally, totally stuck. And so you have a house that can't act because it's now controlled by um, the Republicans who are saying, we don't care about anything except we're just not going to let Biden get anything passed. And then you mm-hmm. have the Senate where it takes 60 votes, not
1: a majority. It takes
3: 60. And so how, so how, how, how,
1: how, Let me ask you about that. Uh, uh, My views on the filibuster have changed. I used to be afraid what would happen um, if radical Republicans were in charge and we didn't have a filibuster. I've changed my view entirely because I now understand that Republicans actually just don't want government to work. The burden of passing things is on Democrats. It's the other way around. So the filibuster only hurts Democrats. So I'm like, okay, throw it out.
3: I, I I'm sort of on your side right now. I, I think that they have managed ways to go forward with whatever they wanted to do and have, you know, we don't have a filibuster on certain things. Well, okay, fine. And we've survived. Let's just keep going, I would say.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it seems like what they want to do is get a Supreme Court that will protect states. Who can do crazy things and are because they've been captured. The legislature's been captured, um, and they keep the federal government from doing anything to stop them or to move the country forward. And for that, the filibuster is meaningless for them, but it really dangerous for us. Well, yes, and of course, when you say that they're saying
3: that, think about the fact that um, they really don't mean it because this new federal ban on abortion is the exact opposite of what they were saying. And they say that it has to be done at the state level, except for this, you know. Except we're not going to let the states right. decide that. Uh, let's do a federal ban. That, that belies the, the honesty of what they were saying, don't you think?
1: Yep, it, I totally think. I think they have, they're have they an outcomes-based uh, uh, sect and they don't care about democratic processes or norms or institutions. They want exactly. to win at whatever the cost. Exactly. And that's,
3: yeah. that's terrifying to me. That is terrifying
1: to me. And some of the cases
3: before the Supreme Court are terrifying to me. Um, the that one that's the independent state legislature theory, that could end the world as we know it. Yeah, so we talk a, about that a lot here. To say, yeah, do you? Okay, yeah. Then you, yeah. Then you know I mean, well that...
1: Insane, right? They would be the only in, in, a, in a country that spent so much time talking about balancing power and fear of tyranny. They would actually say, "Oh, except for the except for elections, we'll have no balance of power." <laughs> that would be it. Just there, we're going to say, "You can like, no balance whatsoever. You do whatever you want." Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy. It's it's a crazy. You know story. what? I, then you say the Supreme Court is illegitimate and you have massive civil disobedience and you just you do what the Republicans do, right? The, in Illinois, we passed uh, anti-assault uh, weapon bans and you got sheriffs saying, I'm not enforcing it. And right. gosh knows right. Ohio, their own Supreme Court said, though, you can't run for election in these districts. And they said, you know what? You don't have any troops. We're going to do it. You're going to see massive civil disobedience on the left after this. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. All right, Jill, Terrible. Uh, it's, uh, it's always a great pleasure to talk to you, and th- thank you. for you made me feel better. I mean, I mean you've talked too. about some rough I, things, I, but you've made me feel better. <laughs> I'm
3: very happy if I did. Thank you very much for talking. It's been a pleasure. Thank you soon. Bye, Jill. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, everybody, that was uh, your remarkable Jill Weinbanks. We are going to take a break and then write this down, 773-763-9278. I will hear from you shortly.
0: You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820.
1: Okay, we've had quite a week, a State of the Union, a response, a uh, whole lot of nonsense about a balloon, but we've had another uh, uh, potential foreign something shot down over Alaska. We got a lot of things to talk about. Um and I'm interested in hearing from you. Join the conversation at 773-763-9278. Jim. Hello there.
9: Hi Edwin. Yeah, I am just uh, it seems like your program has just started. It, it, remind, it it's like looking for a political equilibrium that existed sometime before the last 10, whatever it is, that amount of years, I know, it was a figment of imagination, but there was some political equilibrium. And I just wanted to say, in my own life, uh, the couple of tragic losses that I had, uh, I wouldn't, did not hold up like Biden did. I admire Biden to the F degree for that, his uh, young wife being killed in a car accident and the daughter and his son, Beau. And I think it's, I think it's, uh,
7: I think
9: it. When we look for a leader, I think those ingredients are very important because, you know, you shoulder on somehow. You know, I wasn't that good. I I, uh, took a little bit of drink and drugs there for a few years, and uh, Mm. and I I lost my. I went to work and everything, but I I was I was half there and half not there. You know, I mean, They they were so tragic to me that these were. Cancer diagnosis out of the blue. Uh, one was given a year to live. The other one was given a year to live. Lived to, live. to live for five. And I now I look back and I think that she lived for for the five years. But anyway, my, my point is I admire Biden. And he reminds me a little of Roosevelt in the wheelchair and being compromised in his life. But he had the speech impediment that he overcame. And I think he's, uh, he's pushing us toward... Uh, because civilization is, has to be moved forward, our science and everything else that dictates it. We, this culture war is absurd. It's just absurd because it doesn't. It won't push civilization forward in any means. Anyway, thanks for listening to me, and you have a good weekend. Thanks Simon. Uh
1: Thank you, Jim. And I um, um This is the first time you've shared that story, and I'm very sorry, um, um, but proud of you for getting through it. I mean. Really hard, really, really hard. And, um, you're right about Joe Biden. He's shown enormous personal courage, uh, and courage that I think comes from his optimism and his faith. And I think that is stuff to admire. Dave, what's on your mind?
6: Hey, Edwin, I got a couple um, <clears> things. <throat> on earlier, I heard on Hell Sparks that, uh, with Trump's attorney he had handed over an more classified material uh, from Mar-a-Lago and, uh, Plus an A on a laptop. On a- yeah, a laptop <laughs> a- and a uh, thumb drive. I understand and a laptop yep. and stuff on it. I mean, come on, Jack Smith. What more do you need? I mean, well, <laughs> that match now, you know, and the-
1: I, right. I mean, that's what Joe was talking about. I think we all expect oh. that we are ne- nearing the end game. Nearing yeah, the end
6: and, game. Um, I- an hour ago, or so you and your guest, you were talking about Huckabee's. Uh, Sanders' is State of the Union rebuttal, and and you mentioned somewhere she had said that about the, uh, the Democrats and idolatry, correctly if I'm mistaken, but I seem to remember that they had a golden statue of Donald Trump at the CPAC two years ago. Kind of a they did. More alike, you know.
1: Yep, they did. Look, every time a Republican uh, accuses Democrats of something, it is just their reflection they're seeing. They are always, always aggressively accusing other people of their own crimes. It's a really remarkable, very strange psychology, right? They just, they project all the time, right? They, hey, they,
6: they, they so you can get to the others that, that object that they shot down over Alaska. Uh, I heard it was that Tesla that Elon Musk had released in space from the back home.
1: <laughs> That's good. That's very good. I'm sure I'll read about that on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> See,
6: he flipped flip to the other side anyway. Good enough.
1: Yep, yep. Anyway, uh, well, thank you very much. Everyone, thanks. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Ron, you're next. Hello, Ron. Hello, Edwin. You know, I'm
7: troubled, Edwin. Every week there's more escalation, more weapons that keep the war boiling in Ukraine. And one in particular bothers me is that you have Malcolm Nance who comes on, promotes the war. And I, you know, in my, in my world, the CIA, I remember from my time in Vietnam and they're, they're they're perpetrating the heroin epidemic. Tom Harbin wrote a book about that subject where Nixon was getting heroin money from the CIA trafficking in Vietnam. And Joe Madison writes books about the CIA trafficking in cocaine. Now, just Friday, I tried to get on the air with Malcolm Nance, and Fr- Frangela was complaining about crack cocaine in her neighborhood. Why didn't she ask Malcolm Nance, who's a CIA agent? Of course, he has nothing to do with this, with the cocaine trade or heroin trade, because he, he is the most believable saint in the world now with his his revelations about warmongering. Okay? I mean, yes, the Russians are wrong, but there's no talk of, of, of peace talks. You know, when, when did the CIA become the the Holy Ghost of, of Truth? You know, what, and, and their heroin trafficking, and their cocaine trafficking, and their assassinations of JFK. When did they become the angels of life, of the angels of? Uh, uh,
1: instead okay. of that? Okay. when, All right, well, Ron, Ron, thank you for that. I I oh. uh, have not seen Malcolm Nance on uh on anything in a while. And he's on. I just haven't seen it, so I I can't speak to him or what he's talking about lately. Um, and of course, uh, you know, um, we have a history. It's fair. I, I generally think uh, Congress has done a better job of oversight of agencies, including of the CIA. And I, and I want to say in particular, you know, um, uh, I know she's taken a lot of grief um, because She's, you know, the oldest, I think, Democrat in the Senate. But Dianne Feinstein did very, very serious oversight work um, that led to changes when she was in charge of the Intelligence Committee. And I, I, I so I, I, I want to say we need covert operations in a country. Absolutely. Um, sometimes the secrets allow them to do things that we're all ashamed of. And there's a whole bunch of that in our history. It's Congress's job. This is what proper oversight is. And, 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 you know, we now have an oversight committee that's spending all of its time on Hunter Biden's laptop and on claims that the FBI, not the CIA, but the FBI is somehow, um, uh, lying because they weren't fully investigating Hunter Biden's laptop or Hillary's emails or whatever. So, so I think, um, we need our Congress to do real oversight in the government. And oversight of, of uh, covert operations is hard to do, but it needs to be done. And we've shown it uh, in a democracy that we can do it better than other places. Um, uh, but we won't be done by this crowd that's in charge of oversight right now. And anyway, thank you for uh, raising that interesting question. Um, uh, Paul, you're next yes edwin
5: how are you good good okay good i I just want to make sure you can hear me i i I, I love it when when i hear jill weinbank talking about things that i wrote about almost a year ago it makes me think that i'm almost makes me feel like a brilliant constitutional scholar because uh, (laughs) she's a way way more better lawyer than i am but uh abortion, and she mentioned the 13th Amendment. Well, I, I don't send you this article. I'll, I, maybe I Maybe I haven't, or I have, but it's on my Medium page. But the 13th Amendment, but it starts out with the 14th Amendment, says specifically, uh, essentially, if you will read Section 1, what it says is, in order to be entitled to due, pro, uh, due process and equal protection of the law, you first have to be born okay and so the way the 13th amendment comes in is that even if you want to consider a fetus or even a freshly fertilized you know zygote if you want to say that's a person fine they don't have any constitutional rights yet so in other words that you to have the idea that the state even if we get to state's rights the state could convert a woman to biologic and economic servitude for a term of years For a term of years (laughs) that's in the constitution amounts to slavery because not only do you have the you have and it runs afoul of the fifth amendment as well because no person says it shall be deprived of life liberty and i think your liberty means freedom and if you are impregnated by some, by a, if you have a fetus, uh, your liberty uh, and your property, which is your more money that you have to spend, is being deprived from you. No person shall be deprived without due process. So that means the state in every abortion case should have to show cause as to why they have standing to prevent this person, this woman, from not carrying to term a pregnancy. You see, it's I've laid it out just brilliantly. Uh, it's it's and it, and not only that, it's the same. You know how I came to it, Edwin? I was listening and reading about the Dred Scott case and realized that Dred, uh, Chief Justice Pawnee did not say, "No, you're a slave." Bang his gavel and say, "Get out of here." It was a standing question. The result of the case. Yeah. The result, but the the ruling was that that uh, Dred Scott did not have standing in right. the court because he couldn't claim a citizenship because in those days, and if people want to say CRT doesn't mean anything, in those days, the government had the right, de- the state government had the right to declare that some people are property.
1: Well, all of that that... Um... You know, reminds me of something that happened when I was a young man. I was passionate about good government. I still am. And I was in Chicago City Council. And we were having some argument about a vote that was about to happen. And I was losing my temper. And one of the guys who'd been there much longer than me said, I I love it when I see you young guys who think this is all legit. (laughs) Like, you you think that the Republicans are having these arguments and they're legitimate arguments. They don't care. It doesn't make one bit of difference whether you're right or wrong. If they have the power to jam it down your throat, that's the only thing that matters. So we got to want it more than they do. That, that's true. Did you know that's what essentially what William Rehnquist
5: said? William Rehnquist said as, uh, as, when he clerked, uh, by the way, he clerked for Robert Jackson. Um, uh, William Rehnquist said that what, what is constitutional essentially is what the majority shoves down the throat of the minority. Yeah. And so that well, isn't that essentially what you just said?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking uh, broader than just this particular court, but yes, about our, you know yeah. what, what's going on inside. Yep.
5: I think he meant, I took that as he meant that generically. William Rehnquist didn't just say the majority on the court. I think he meant it, the majority of people. And so, and ah, well, then,
1: then, then, Paul, I disagree. Then I absolutely disagree because right now we are seeing the majority of Americans agree about most things and a minority, yeah. a rabid, yeah, hardcore yeah, minority. Oh, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Paul, as always, a great. Could he have meant both things?
5: That's what I'm saying. He could have meant both things. Yeah.
1: yeah, he might have. I mean, I'm not a Rehnquist scholar, so I don't know. Anyway, thank you, as always. Really interesting um all right uh i uh now i guess um brian you're next
10: hi edwin hope you're doing well um uh, well i'm just checking in uh because uh Uh, if uh, the fascist DeSantis in uh, Florida is not distressing enough uh, did you hear about this uh, resolution uh, uh, that was passed uh, that uh, uh, condemns uh, the word socialism in all its forms
1: no where did that happen
10: well I just heard about it I think about the last week or so Uh, I think it passed in the House uh, and then uh um, I don't know what they're doing with it with the Senate. and, they, and uh, but uh of course uh, uh they are r- roughly what they what they've done was uh it's like a condemnation uh it's like uh saying that a democratic socialists uh, like uh, Bernie Sanders or uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Nina Turner, they're democratic socialists. Millions voted for Bernie for president. Is the same thing as uh, Karl Marx and Marxism. And that's, what, that's what they've done. Uh, It's a kind of a condemnation of uh, socialism in any form. And, of course, we're allied with uh, the United States is allied with democracies uh, like uh, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, uh, Germany, uh, which are you can say, Democratic Socialist countries. This is quite different uh, from uh, evil uh, communists uh, who might call themselves socialists, like uh, uh, Stalin, Paul Pot, Chairman Mao, uh, you know, uh, people like that. Uh, Apparently, they don't know the distinction between Karl Marx and Groucho Marx. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I think this is... uh, Intellectually dishonest at best and a very uh, dangerous uh, trend uh, because uh, we have to be very careful uh, how we uh, uh, use the language and how we define our terms politically, especially in this day and time. Uh, if you ever pick up on some of these uh, uh, right-wing, uh, extremist radio stations, and then Fox does it too, uh, Fox News on TV, uh, anyone who uh, talks about global warming and climate change is part and parcel of a much larger communist conspiracy and if the democrats win the next presidential election this will be a communist country there is no communist movement in this country and i reject communism myself but democratic socialism is a quite different thing
1: Okay. I don't know where even to start. I, I, you're shocked that there is intellectual dishonesty coming from Fox TV. You're shocked that there's intellectual dishonesty coming from the, from the, uh, MAGA members of Congress. No, you're not. It's what you expect of them because they have, that's the level they're playing at. And we just have to stick to what we know. We have to stick to making life better for Americans and And never lose sight of that. And as we do that, they will fade into the ash can of history like other fools, charlatans, showmen, intellectually dishonest uh, hacks throughout our history. But we have to want it more than they do, and we have to keep fighting.
10: But, well, I'm glad but. that you're bringing this up on almost a weekly basis, uh, especially uh, what's going on with that fascist DeSantis, uh, yeah. because, uh, uh, you know, it's important. It's ugly. Uh, to, uh, you, you really do a super job yeah. Edwin because people have to be uh, reminded because we uh, before you know it there'll be new elections and uh, we really have to uh, keep uh, a, a Democrats in there and keep away from these uh, right-wing extremists I call them fascists the, from yeah. that fascist party as well I mean.
1: thank you Brent. Well, let's let's hope we can do that thank you very much.
10: Thank
9: you, Ed. Thank
1: you. Al, what's on your mind, Al?
11: Hi, I wanted to make some comments about the election and the fact that uh, right now there's no uh, real good place for, you know, a, a, a partisan uh, explanation or a, a partisan recommendation for the candidates, and including mayoral candidate and all the award candidates that I could tell a friend, uh, you know, I'm in Franklin Park and I don't have any elections, but, you know, this, you know, know, I used to say, you know, it's a, the last election was the most uh, most important election of your lifetime, but, you know, the next election is the most important election of your lifetime, and, and also uh, on WCPT, you've had a lot of good interviews with, with uh, various ward candidates and and so on and that should all be in one place that could be easily accessed so i can tell the friend i know it's in the uh you know 36th ward or the 40th ward to you know go here and and Mm listen to this interview and so on
1: i appreciate that i don't really cover um chicago politics so much on this show it's a more of a national show i certainly have opinions about chicago politics including about aldermanic races and the mayoral race um but um uh, I'm going to keep those to myself because for the, for the, for, it's not fair to use this platform for that. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, there's good stuff on the Heartland Signal website, but there's a lot of good stuff. Also, um, uh, you know, Tribune sometimes, uh, 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 Block Club. I mean, it, it's not hard to find if you're looking for information on the races. But thank you for raising it. It is, and people should know there is a Chicago municipal election the last day of February for mayor of Chicago and for all of the aldermen and other races that are, that are new and interesting, like seats on a new police oversight board. All of that is, uh, makes a difference in our future. And I hope participation is high. I hope if you're listening, you will do the research and show up and vote. Thank you, um, Al, very much.
11: Can I make one more comment? Sure. Hello. Uh, yep. Well, it has to do with uh, the border. You you talked with uh, a gentleman earlier, and uh, the fact that you know uh, what is being done right now by the Biden administration and and by like uh, Kamala Harris and trying to figure out what's going on in the uh, uh, southern or or, uh, 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 the southern countries and trying to uh, uh, stop the problems before they get to the border. Then we have the Iron uh, River, I've heard it called, of all the guns going down there that are also causing a problem. We need to be, you know, uh, bringing that up and talking about that more as well.
1: Uh, I will take that to heart and maybe spend more time on border issues on our calls. Thank you. Really appreciate that.
11: Oh. Um, uh, who's next, um, Ron? Yes, uh, with the uh, raising of the debt ceiling uh, limit, uh, do the Republicans have anything left to fight with the Social Security and Medicare that's not going to be cut? Now they're trying to go after food stamps. You know, it, uh, it's another
9: losing battle.
1: Them. For them, yes, it's a losing battle, but the stakes are very high, and if they if they don't uh, come, you know, and put an end to this, it's chaos for everyone, but it's chaos that, you know, this is a risk that they put us through regularly uh, as part of their, you know, it's my way or the highway, like a spoiled baby, um, and... We should call them out on this. They should not be playing with the full faith and credit of the United States. The stakes are too high. If you want to negotiate on the budget, negotiate on the budget. That's a different, it's a different issue. It's always been a different issue, Um, but they see a lever to power and it's backfiring on them because we've learned their tricks. So thank you for raising it. Um, And every American knows a default would be a disaster. They should do the darn job finish this, you know, get rid of the debt ceiling nonsense. And if they want to negotiate on the budget, by all means, put up a budget. But we haven't seen them do it. Thank you very much, Ron. Um, Eduardo, you're next.
4: Yeah, and I'll be brief because I know you're almost done here. Uh, BBC did a report about the Turkey uh, earthquake. 13 million homes are not structurally stable. So this
7: explains the destruction you're seeing on TV right now.
1: Right. And one of the reasons they're not structurally stable is that they have a government that's moved – away from democracy. This is a great example of why democr- d- democracies are better, right? To the extent that Erdogan has moved Turkey away from democracy, he did it during a building boom in the 2000s, and he did it by, you know, handing over property to developers, letting them cut corners in what they built, right? So that, so that, and I'm not saying these are new buildings, but the building the standards that are in the building codes got watered down because of corruption that goes with autocracy. And and, and now um, tens of thousands of people have died. We don't know how many. It is an awful tragedy. And I'm not saying it wouldn't have been a big tragedy anyway, but it's compounded and this inability to address the problem is part of the problems of this kind of terrible government. But you also have, the civil war in Syria and all kinds of other things that make this a humanitarian disaster in a corner of the world that has seen so many humanitarian disasters. And for the people who live there, oh, my heart goes out to them because it's just very, very terrible when you have leadership who, who puts their own interests always ahead of the humans who live there. Really terrible. Eduardo, thank you for that. And that, Emma, friends, is going me. to be our... You bet. That's going to be our last topic for today. Um, um, I probably have not thanked Julia and Paul uh, recently and enough um, for making these shows work. Julia, my producer, Paul manages the board. They keep us going and all of you for listening every week uh, and joining this conversation. I'm deeply grateful. See you next week.